The Joe Rogan Experience. Train by day, Joe Rogan Podcast by night, all day. Well, cheers, sir. Hey, cheers. Pleasure to meet you. Yeah, and likewise, man. Mm. I love your shit, dude. Thanks, man. Appreciate that. You got a great voice and great songwriting. I try my best. I really it's great do. shit. Yeah. Solid country. Yeah, I try, man. I really do. You know, it's, you never know. A lot of, a lot of. Uh, I don't know. You, I guess you always have doubts. I mean, that comes with, you know. At least I do. You know, yeah. constantly like, is this good enough, or is it country enough, or is it? I don't know. It's just always. I'd be lying if I said I didn't have. I think that's what makes you great. I think you have to have those doubts. I mean, you're you have to. I think every artist is always like self-analyzing and always. You have to yeah. be. You have to. I mean, or else you're just. You know, my biggest fear is like making the same record a hundred times. You know. Yeah, because we all know people who've done that before. Mm -hmm. And when that's you're a tough. fan of someone and they do that, mm -hmm. that's one of the things I love about Sturgill. Is like every album. It's like he's a new artist. Yeah. It's like who it's are way you? Different. Yeah, everything's way different with him, man. Yeah, I, I remember Turtles all the way down coming out, and I was like, man, this is just such a departure from the last thing. Yeah, and that can be scary as an artist too, because you're like, well, all my fans that I have were the fan of this previous thing, right? So yeah. there's the new thing, alienate those people. It's just tough, man. It's a weird. I think if you, if people have to do that, though, if you, you know, if that's what you feel. It's yeah. like, I think they go along with you, especially today. I think people are more willing than ever to let people take chances. No doubt. And I mean, I think that comes with the artist now has the power in a lot of ways, mm -hmm. right? With the rise of the internet. Yes. I mean, I think I was really kind of one of the first people who was able to bring something to. Like when I got my first deal, it was like, well, I already had all, a built-in fan base. And that wasn't really ever happening at that time. Like as I was on this social media app called Vine, do you remember that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it was like, I mean, I wasn't like, you know, mega big on there or anything. But I had enough enough fans, I guess, where I was selling music. that, And I didn't realize that that was weird until I got to Nashville. And they're like, wait, you're selling how much? And I'm like, oh, I thought that was, that's low, right? <laughs> And they're like, not really. It's not really that low at all. And I was like, oh, that's cool, you know. So then you got some negotiating power too. When you go Were you one head. of the first artists that uh, in the country scene that kind of made it off of social media? I would, yeah, I would say me and uh, Kane Brown probably were like the first two. And he, we both got signed at Sony. And I think that's to credit to you know, I mean, Randy Goodman, who still runs Sony Nashville, has always been forward thinking in that. Like, at least before, in my opinion, all the other labels in Nashville were thinking about that stuff. He was always thinking about mm. what's the next thing or, like, how do we stay ahead of the trend or whatever. And other other labels weren't doing that at that time. And when you first started doing it on Vine, we just doing it because it was just a thing that you could put your shit on? I mean, you, you obviously didn't think that it would take no. off the way it did. It just made sense, right? Yeah. It was like... It was like, okay, well, this is a tool. And all I was doing on there was, I mean, the content on that app was six seconds long. Right. It was like right. it was like TikTok, but six seconds. Right. And so it was like you would have to pick out what's the most impactful section of a George Strait song or of a Waylon Jennings song or anything I can sing or of something that's on the radio, a Lee Bryce song or whatever it was. And go, what's the singingest ass part of this song? 
and I would get on there and just sing that six seconds of on my guitar and then put it on there and people were sharing and sharing. And then when I put my own music out, I'm like, well, obviously I'm going to market to these people that are already like my voice and stuff. And it just worked out. That was, it was never a master plan. Right. You know, I wasn't like, I would love to say, man, I had this big scheme and I had it all planned out. It just like, it was this little, these like logical steps that just made sense to me. I think it's kind of better that it's not a master plan. It just, just followed your instincts. Yeah. It was, I always tell, it was, I mean, there is so much luck involved. No doubt. I mean, anybody that has success, obviously you have to be able to sing and you have to have songs that people like, right? Those things are, you know, that's a given. But there's a lot of people that I know in town that I would argue are a lot more talented than me. Singers, songwriters that went for the artist thing and it was just, it wasn't the right time. Or their music didn't connect at that time with whatever the mainstream kind of fan base was. Yeah. And now they're just, they'll just, they're just songwriters instead. Because it, now they're, they might be 40 something. You know, and they're like, well, I don't want to, I'm not going to get a deal and go on a radio tour. I got three kids, you know, make, you know, half a million dollars a year writing songs or something. Right. Yeah, but that would suck. Yeah. That would listen to somebody else belting out your hits. Yeah, but there's also a contingency of guys that like, like I have some friends that went the route, like they had the deal, they had the songs, it wasn't the right time, but then the artist thing just wasn't for them either. Like going around and doing PR stuff, like that gave them anxiety. Yeah. Like having fans, that gave them anxiety. And that's like, I think there's people that lean more into, they would rather just do the creative stuff and and hope, okay, I hope I can, you know, write, I hope you dance for Leanne Womack instead of being Leanne Womack and singing, I hope you dance. Yeah, well, that I get. I mean, some people just, they don't have the personality for it. They don't enjoy it. They're, yeah. they're more introspective. Mm -hmm. They're more, you know, in, introverted. Yeah, I get it. It's a weird world, right? The, the world of uh, taking your thoughts and putting them down and then sharing with people. And then, you know, like, I mean, what is it like for you when you're like, at a red light and you hear some dude playing your music next to you. Does that ever happen to you? <laughs> yeah, it's it's even crazier like uh like the th place that always gets me is like on like when someone's listening to it on a boat. To me that's the ultimate test of a, a song. It's like if somebody's <laughs> listening to you on a boat, dude, they love you. Dude. They absolutely love your shit if that's they listen so to you true. on a boat. Dude. That's so true. You know what I mean? Right. I right. mean, how many artists that you listen to in your car, you probably wouldn't listen to on a boat? It's a different yeah. thing, right? Like yeah. to me, it's like if it's summer, the weather's nice, the drinks are flowing, uh -huh. yeah. you know, and dude, your song's on the boat, that's the soundtrack to like the best time that someone could possibly be having. That's so true. You know? That's so true. You're the highlight of their weekend or their summer or yeah. whatever. Like that song is like a huge part of their life if they're playing it on a boat. I never thought of it like that. But that's true, like boat music. It's <laughs> dude, it's a ultimate. different it's a different breed, dude. You know? It's the ultimate. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy, man. Yeah, my fourteen year old, she loves Kanye West. And she likes to crank Kanye West on the boat. Yep. And I'm always like, Okay. You're like, <laughs> I just right. like just hope oh, cool. Yeah. <laughs> hope nobody gets mad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like forget about what he said. These are bangers. Is it like new Kanye or is it old Kanye? She likes though? all of it. All of it. Yeah. 
Huh. I like the. I love the old stuff. I can't yeah. say I'm jamming the the ye stuff, or I can't say I'm. J- I just to me the choruses, his choruses in the beginning were just incredible incredible dude yeah you know incredible yeah I'm, I'm very curious to see what he comes up with now after all this uh cancellation shit it's crazy man like, i bet he's gonna come up with some fucking is, banger is he like m- missing or something well, was that know, a thing kind of like laying back there was some photos of him with some lady the other day that you know he's out and about so smiling. he's confirmed i mean he's around i don't i don't know what he's up to it's because uh, he lives like middle of nowhere or something now, right? He's got a place like, in Wyoming. Okay, yeah, he's got a ranch in Wyoming. Man, that must be nice. Fuck yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah, that's <laughs> I'd love move. to have one of those. A ranch in Wyoming. Everybody who saw Yellowstone was like, "God damn it, I want to live like." They're that. like Montana's too expensive, so I'm going to <laughs> Wyoming. Yeah, yeah, Montana's overrun by yuppies. Yeah, I love Montana though. God, it's fucking oh. beautiful out where uh, Renella lives. Yes. I just went to Banff last week yeah. for the first time. Have you ever been there? No. Dude, it it's like even more Montana, Montana. Really? How could it be? <sighs> it's hard to explain, man. I mean, it, it's just so, so like we had, me and my wife flew into Calgary. That's the closest you can get is Calgary. Even flying private, the really? closest you can get is Calgary. So it's Atlanta in another country. No, it's they're both in Canada. Both in oh, Canada. Okay. So you go Calgary, and it's an hour and a half drive to Banff. But oh. it is, like, the sickest drive. Like, 20 minutes out of Calgary, it turns into, like, the most Rocky Mountain thing you've ever seen. Really? And it's just, I mean, it's out of control, man. I mean, I had never seen anything like it. We stayed in this hotel that was, like, built in 1889 Whoa. up there. I'm like, I, it's hard for me to get there now. Right. What was it like in 1889 to try to get there? What's it made out? Is it made out of logs? It's stone. Whoa. Yeah. So I'm like, how do you even get the? It had to be. There's a railway that goes through there, but I imagine like, yes, it's called the Fairmont. Wow. Yep. Wow. Look at that fucking dude, place. Look at that view. Holy was shit. Wild, dude. What a beautiful place. Yeah. That's from 1889. Yep. 1889. How did they even get there? Like I we're don't talking pre automobile. Yeah. Well, I, so I grew up in Asheville, and I always think about the Biltmore House. Mm. Have you ever been to the Biltmore I've House? I've been to Asheville. I've never. I don't dude, know if I've seen the. Pull Biltmore up the House. Biltmore House. This place is staggering, dude. I mean, it is like you can't even. Believe, so if you sit on to kind of sits on this hill, right? So the Vanderbilts built it. So it was the largest. Whoa. Yeah, largest That's in Asheville. Mm-hmm. Holy shit. So if you stand on top of that building, they owned everything you can see from the top of that building, which is like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of acres. Wow. I mean, it is unbelievable. It was the largest residence, private residence in the United States for a long, 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 long time. Um, they have the chest set in there that Napoleon's heart was put on after he died. <laughs> Just crazy. They cut dude. his heart off and put it's it on. Crazy. They dude. put it on a chest set. But that's the kind of stuff they have in that house, dude. <laughs> Is there still a blood stain? I, I don't know. I can't attest to that. <laughs> I can't attest. But I used to go. I mean, I've been in that place four or five times. I mean, and it's just staggering. Do you stay there? Can you stay no, there? No, you can't stay there. It's tours. Oh, wow. But they, they have a hotel on property, but it's not. You don't stay in there. They had a swimming pool, bowling alleys. I mean, it was like decked out. The biggest mansion you've ever seen, but it was built in. I, mean, I can't attest to the date that that one was built in, but 1800s, no doubt. 
Wow, well, I wonder why they built such a big place in Asheville. Why? Why would Brock- I, you know? I don't know. So they have they built a whole town around it, right? It's called Biltmore Village, um, and I actually sang in a choir at the All Souls Cathedral there in high school, which was built by the Vanderbilts as well. And so it's like super old. Episco- it's an Episcopalian church. Wow, look at that fucking place, dude! It oh my is, god! It's, I mean, everything's marble, dude. I mean, it's... Can you imagine living there in the 1800s? What that wow. was like? Wow. Staggering. Again, man. pre-automobile. These people are riding horses to this uh-huh. house. Yeah. Dude, they imported... And I, they, someone's definitely going to fact check me on this, but I believe they imported everything from overseas on this whole place. The marble, the stone. Wow. Look at the ceiling in that place. Yeah. That's incredible. Wow. 250 rooms, dude, in that place. Jesus Christ. What a fucking place. Some people just have too much money. That's too much money. Yeah, they. you should, You should. <laughs> if you're ever in Asheville, you got to go tour that place, man. It's unbelievable. My buddy Duncan grew up in Asheville, and he lived there before he moved back here to Austin. But uh, he, uh, he grew up there, and they used to uh, give the cows like a special antifungal feed because they were growing mushrooms so much <laughs> that all these kids sounds, were going out to the fields. Sounds very <laughs> Asheville. And it's funny, growing up in Asheville, like I heard about that. Like I heard it would be like, oh, if you go under the the cow patties, man, there's mushrooms under there. Yeah. And I always thought was like, man, that's a total lie. But it's not. Apparently. No, apparently those spores are just in the hills. He said like on any given day, you go out there and there's mushrooms everywhere. That's wild, man. Yeah, there were so many that, again, they were giving these cows some sort of feed to discourage the mushrooms from, from growing. growing in their shit. I believe it. That Which sounds... seems like a crime against humanity. <laughs> like, why the fuck would you do that? Well, it's like, why mess with it, right? Yeah, you know? just let the kids pick them. Yeah, let them no, do what they're no going to do. No one's dying you know? from mushrooms. Yeah, let them do what they're going to do. Yeah. I'm in agreement with that. Also, it's awesome. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a... Uh, Asheville's a special place. It's a very interesting place. It is, yeah. I, I moved there. Me and my parents moved there when I was eight from Charlotte. I was born in Charlotte and moved there, and we lived there. I mean, I went to Appalachian State University, which oh, is wow. an hour and a half away from Asheville. My parents actually just moved um, two months ago to Nashville because we had, you know, I just had my first son, and so they wanted to be close to the grandkid, and... It was wild. It was like they didn't want to. They wanted to move, but they were really torn because they they've loved that. We've been in that, they've been in that same house since I was eight, you know, and so it was tough. I mean, we still have the house at the moment and stuff. I'm trying to figure out like if we want to keep it or you know sell it. It's, I don't know. It's a it's tough, you know. Yeah, it's hard when you have roots in a place. Yeah, my my dad, you know, my dad's sixty nine, and his two best friends live in in Asheville, and you know they drink beer every friday and for 25 years you know and it's like he moved to to nashville it's like he doesn't know anybody you Uh, know and it's like so i think he struggles with that a lot which i you know is tough for me too because i don't want him to like not be living his best life either you know what i mean it's like i love that he's close to you know my son and my son's close with his grandparents but i also want them to like enjoy their enjoy their life too right tells friends to move I know, right? That's what you got to do. Yeah. Get them to move to Nashville. <laughs> All right. Move. All right. Yeah, you just got to talk everybody into moving. Get that mass exodus going. Yeah. It's a dude, Nashville's like it's it's a hot hot market too. It man. is. It's 
Well, it's like in Austin. It's like Austin in a lot of ways, where the the pandemic opened it up. Mm-hmm. A lot of it people are really like, "I'm getting the fuck out of wherever I am. Yep. It sucks, and I'm, yep. I'm going to go somewhere that's a little freer." And yeah, that's yeah. a little less stringent. Yeah. You know, yeah. Nashville's a good place, man, but it is. It's it's a great place. It's changed a lot. Even since I've been there, I don't want to act like I've been there, you know, 30 years, you know, because I'm probably considered a new Nashvillian myself. How long? Um, So I moved there in 2014, so nine years. So not that long. Yeah, I think you need like 10 years. Yeah, you need 10 Before years. you can start talking shit. Before you can be like, yeah, it's, it's changed, you know? <laughs> yeah, we ran into this guy the other day that was talking about Austin. He's like, man, Austin's just not the same. And Tony goes, how long you been here? And the guy goes, five years. He goes, shut the fuck up. <laughs> he goes, bitch, you just got here. Yeah, I'm that guy. I'm that Nashville guy. I'm like, yeah, it used to just be so, so different. Well, people you know? love to say things like that, though. They do. It makes them feel like, I feel like it's almost like if you're saying that, you're taking ownership that yeah. like, that's your home. Now, right. Yeah. Right? Like whether you've been there five years or 50 years, yeah. when you say things like that, it, it really shows that you feel some sort of ownership to that place. And yeah. maybe that's the place that you want to be or you feel like is home. So maybe it's a good thing, you know? Yeah, it's a pride thing. It's it's better than, like, shitting on it. I yeah. Mean, it's like you just want it to stay good. But, you know, things change and they evolve. And it's not that it's not as good. It's just different. Yeah. I mean, I can imagine, you know, some of the – some of the guys I, that, you know, I love listening to that, you know, were in Nashville in the 60s and 70s, like, what would they think of it now? Is you know? the scene in Nashville, the the music scene, is it Hollywoodized in any way or is it still gritty? Like, what is it? What's so, like the... There's like two sects of it, right? Like, there's, there is still a very, like, gritty scene and there always has been, right? So you've got... Uh, you know, you've got like Black Keys type kind of thing, you know, going on in East Nashville. Like there's so many bands that have come out of East Nashville that are not part of kind of the mainstream Nashville thing. And that community still really exists. And a lot of, I think, artists, country artists that people love that would kind of even two or three years ago have been considered like Americana like that term, I'm not even sure what that means, right? Mm-hmm. Like to me, that's just like country music that, you know, there's all these people on the internet that are like, well, it ain't, you know, Luke Combs, he ain't a real country singer, you know what I mean? Because he's not, you know what I mean? Because he's mean? not Sturgill Simpson or whatever it is, right? Like there's always these people who are trying to discredit you, but there's these definitely these two different sects of like mainstream and non-mainstream that exist in right. Nashville. And there's people that are, trying to chase kind of those those things separately Mm. and sometimes when popularity on the not chasing that goes through the roof then it kind of can transition into the major labels are like well maybe you know we should sniff around this guy you know and i i was always i i didn't move to nashville to like be necessarily be like i'm gonna be a country artist i just wanted to do music for a living in any way right like I worked, you know, a bunch of jobs in high school and college and, and I, you know, I went to college for five years, didn't graduate, which I'm sure my parents loved, you know, I was 21 hours away from getting my degree and I was like, I'm going to do music, you know, and it was whatever that was sweeping floors in a studio would have been great to me because I would be around music. I'd be trying to write music, publish and do, I mean, realistically, I thought to myself, especially at the time I moved to town is like, 
dude, everybody that was doing music when I moved to town was hot, dude. Six five, <laughs> abs, dude. I mean, I had, didn't have a chance, bro. You know, I didn't have a chance. And so I'm going, well, cool. I'll just write songs for these handsome cats and like, it'll be whatever, dude. I'll be fine with me, you know? Um, but I just, re- I really like, again, back to the luck thing, man. Like I stumbled into it at the right time. I think Chris Stapleton singing Tennessee whiskey with Justin Timberlake at the CMAs was a, a earth shattering moment for country music. Mm. And that opened the door up for guys like myself to pursue a career, like somebody who didn't look like every other guy mm. in town. And the, everyone knew about Chris Stapleton in town. That guy was a legend in town. Had been there for 12, 13, 14 something years at that time. Mm. He had 250 cuts as a songwriter when that performance happened. Wow. So it was not It was just no one gave him a chance because he was a husky guy with a beard. Yeah. And God that, damn that voice. Oh, man. He's unbelievable. That national anthem at the Super Bowl, dude, oh, was amazing. That was, that's, it's, it's that and Whitney Houston. Two best national anthems ever, in my opinion, at the Super Bowl ever. He's got some fucking bangers, that guy. I was sitting in a box with Adele at the Super Bowl, and he sang that thing, and she was watching, and like t- like two lines in, she just goes, holy shit. <laughs> yeah, like, she just was losing her mind. Dude. See it was, if you can I play mean, that. Can you find that? It was unbelievable. Let's listen man. to it. I mean, I mean, he's unbelievable. He's a good dude yep. too. I had him on a couple years back. He's fun to hang with. He's a very, very genuine person. It's it's he's always quiet. yeah yeah. It's always nice when you meet someone that you really admire and they're just cool as fuck. Oh, is this it? Oh, yeah. To honor America with the performance of the national anthem, eight-time Grammy Award winner, dude, Chris Staple. When Nick Sirianni cries in this thing. I felt like a bald eagle was going to fly over the stadium, dude. It was the most American thing I've ever seen in my entire life. Look at him. Dude. Woo. Oh, the rain. 
God dang. That was electric, dude. I can't even explain to you what being there in person was like for that. Wow. It was unbelievable, man. Woo. But I remember when Sirianni came on on the big jumbo screen in there with the tears coming down. I was like, this is like, this I'll never be a moment like this again. Like, I'll never be be present for a moment like that again. And, like, felt the gravity of it in the moment, too. It wasn't just, like... When you saw it on TV, it was cool, you know? Yeah. It was like they were showing that same feed in the stadium, and it was that, like, even more impact. I'd never been to the Super Bowl before, so it was like I was already soaking it in, you know? Right. There's already something about a big event like that, but to have him sing it like that. Man. Yeah, it was was unreal, man. It really was. That guy's an incredible generational talent. Yeah. No doubt. I mean, just no doubt about it. No, he's incredible. That's pretty fucking badass. When did you when did you first think that you wanted to do music? I Man, it honestly wasn't till I was so I'm 33. It was when I was 22 probably. Yeah. It was when I was really like I could do this. And it was Did you enjoy it before? You just like as a yeah. hobby? Yeah. I, I I it was beyond a hobby for me, but I didn't even realize that. You know, so I was so in sixth grade, right? So I paint the kind of how these things happen. It's like in sixth grade, the first year of middle school, right? What they did in my middle school was it was like these six week grading periods. And so in the first year of middle school, they made you take every elective. So you would take gym class for six weeks and chorus for six weeks and band for six weeks. Actually, I think you got to choose chorus or band. But you had to do one music, and then you took art, and you took home ec. And so at, and during that sixth grade year, you try out every elective they have in the school. And then seventh grade, you pick what elective you want to take for, like, so you get one elective per semester. So you could have two electives in your seventh grade year. So there was an option for chorus that was a one semester of chorus, or you could try out for, like, the advanced chorus, which would be both semesters. So I liked chorus a lot. And so I was like, well, I'll do I'll do the one semester chorus and then I'll do gym or whatever, you know, because like I like it, but I don't want to take it that serious. Right. So I do my first semester. I'm in chorus and my teacher, Miss Rayburn, she comes up to me like last week of school and she's like, will you please change your elective and be in advanced chorus with me? And I was like, yeah, I mean, if you really want me to, like, I liked it a lot. And I was like, man, I wish I could do that in gym or whatever, you know. And so I did. I switched it. And so from seventh grade until I graduated high school, I was in chorus class every day of school for six years, you know. And then I got to high school. I get to high school. My course teacher, Miss Bryant, was like, I mean, she was like my mom at school. She was like my school mom. Me and her became super tight. I mean, I was her teacher assistant my senior year. I was in her class. A fourth of my entire high school career was spent in her classroom. And I was in every musical every year. So after school for half the year, I was doing the musical. And I just I just liked it. And I, I didn't realize I was even any good until like ninth grade when Miss Bryant was like, hey, you're like, you're, you're like good. You're really good. And I was like, oh, cool. I, that's nice, you know, because I like doing this. That's fun. And. I remember I was transitioning to go to college, and she said, I asked her, I was like, hey, should I do music in college, you know? 
And she, I remember her telling me, don't do music in college if you can see yourself doing anything else. Wow. So if you can imagine yourself doing anything else other than music, you shouldn't pursue music in college. So I, in my brain, I'm thinking, okay, well, I, I only thought the only option was to be a music teacher. In my head, I'm going, well, that's the only option is to be a music teacher. And I, I don't want to be a music teacher because I'm really bad. Like, I, I can't read music. I, I, like, I'm, I, like, I can't do math. Like, I, I have some sort of, like, I just can't so learn So you, you can't read music? Mm -mm. Wow. Not at all. And, like, I, like it's like probably some sort of form of, like, dyslexia, probably, to the truest extent. Like, barely past math. Have like, you tried to read music? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I what mean, happens? I, I was in, um, so, her, so her husband was actually the band teacher. He taught advanced placement music theory, which was a new class my senior year. I took that class and got like a D because it was like all these, the kids that were the best at band and the best at chorus were who was in that class. There was only like eight students in the class. And it, all it is was advanced. Like, here's the notes, here's this. I tried out for all state chorus three years in high school and didn't make it because you had to be able to read. You had to do a sight singing audition, which is where they would hand you a piece of sheet music and you had to sing it just by reading the notes on there oh. right so it was a combination of what your voice sounded like and your ability to keep up with the all-state choir teacher whoever that was picked out to be and i never made it because i couldn't read the music i just couldn't do it i i, I don't know why did you get coaching on it did you get like yeah i mean i i try i mean i busted to try to and it, it, it's just something about it doesn't doesn't make sense to me it, like to my brain like i get it like if i sit there and like plink it out really really slow i mean i could figure it out right but it just doesn't it's just such to me it's such an instinctual thing mm. you know <clears throat> and so i was in an acapella group my freshman year of college for a year um I, I enjoyed that but again it was just like an after school kind of activity thing with other people in college you know <clears throat> excuse to have people to drink with really you know people with common ground or whatever and gave that up my beginning of my sophomore year, really. Um, and then didn't do music. I played rugby. I got into playing rugby in college. I did that. Loved that. And I was just the guy that would, like, sing at parties or whatever. Like, my buddies that played rugby with knew I sang. They'd be like, dude, sing for these chicks or whatever. You know, it was kind of like I was like party trick guy, mm. you know. And then after my junior year, I moved home to Asheville, and I, we, I'd always moved home every summer up to that point. And then my mom goes, because I was sulking, because all my buddies that year, they all stayed in their college town for the summer. I was the only guy that moved back. So all my friends are gone. They're in Raleigh. They're in Charlotte. They're in Chapel Hill. They're in Boone. They're in, you know, Callaway at all these different schools. So I'm working at the same job I had when I was 16 at a go-kart place with a bunch of high school kids. I'm 21 years old. I got nobody to hang out with. I'm living in my parents' house. I'm not doing well in school. I don't know what I want to do with my life at all. And I'm sitting on the porch. I remember sitting on my parents' carport, and it was like my mom come out. And she was like, what's wrong with you? Like, what's, what's – I'm an only child, too. So she's like, what's what's going on? And I was like, well, I don't know, Mom. I was like, I don't have any friends here. Like, I'm working at fucking go-karts, you know. Like, what am I doing? And she's like, well, you know, 
you know what, Luke, Kenny Chesney and Tim McGraw, they didn't even learn to play guitar until they were 21 years old. And I was 21, right? And so my parents had bought me a guitar in seventh grade that I never played. I did two guitar lessons and hated it because my parents wanted me to do it. You know what I mean? Like yeah. anything your parents want you to do, you don't want to do, really. And so I went in the closet and I got this, oh, it's like an Ibanez, like $50 acoustic guitar, you know, just horrendous condition. But I didn't know that. Didn't know anything about guitar. Didn't know what a good guitar was. Didn't know nice guitars even existed. So I taught myself all summer. I just sat on the porch when I wasn't at work, playing, playing, playing. Because I knew I loved to sing. And I was like, well, I'll just learn how to play and then I can sing at like parties for my buddies or whatever. And taught myself all year. And then just kind of became obsessed with like learning how to play. And by the time I was 22, I'm back in school. I'm in Boone, hanging out with my buddies. I'm starting to dabble around with like writing my own songs because I was like, well, I could, you know, this would be cool. I like this. And then I wrote my first two or three songs and I booked a gig down the street, just like at this bar my rugby team always hung out at because I figured that guy would, you know, he was like cokehead, like wild card, like he'd give me a show or whatever, you know. <laughs> guy was awesome you know i was like this guy will give me a show if i want to do a show <clears throat> so i borrowed my neighbor's guitar because mine wasn't even acoustic electric it was just a straight up acoustic and sat on a stool my other buddy let me borrow his pa speakers and 200 of my friends came out and paid a dollar to see me i made 200 bucks that night <laughs> that was more than i made at both my jobs that week and i was hooked man i was like dude this is awesome like i love doing this One first show. off yeah. I'm like, I love doing this anyways. And I'm having a great time. I'm like having drinks with my friends. Everybody's psyched to see me here and stuff. And I was like, it just made sense, man. It wasn't, it wasn't one ounce of hard work in my mind after that point. It was just always fun, man. And I always loved it. Man. Wow. So yep. it's like a door opened up, you walked through it yep. and your life changed forever. It just made sense, dude. Yeah. It was like a true, like aha moment right mm. like you hear about those from people oh i think i'm gonna oh, flip the top yeah. yeah and you hear about those things but it truly was that it was truly an aha moment man and it was life it was a life-changing man i don't know what i'd be doing if i hadn't done that that's so awesome i love those kind of stories i really do i love those stories because it gives other people hope too like you, you, yeah i guarantee you there's someone listening out there that's in that same state that you were in when you were 21. They're like, what the fuck am I doing? Mm -hmm. And everybody has that feeling. I feel like most people, right? Yes. Yeah. Like most people yeah. are like, and you're in, you graduate college. I think about myself at, you know, if I graduated on time, 22, I didn't even graduate. But if I would have graduated on time, I'd been 22 years old. And at 22, I, it's like I just by the hair of my chin figured out what I was going to do. Wow. And that's got to be kind of abnormal, right? Even. Like you go to college and it's like, okay, I'm a business major. Right. And then I get out and then I realize I hate business because I'm only 22 years old and right. I don't know anything really. Yeah. All I know is like getting drunk and like smoking weed and stuff, you know, yeah. and hanging out and going to class. Well, for most people too, you're looking for something that you could do where you can survive. You're just looking for a living. Yeah. You know, and mm -hmm. if you can find something that's not a living, but is a passion something yeah. that you really enjoy, you're already yeah. way ahead of the game. I always think to myself, man, don't make a living, make a life, right? Uh, it's like, and that's, I wish I would have known that at the time. Yeah. But, but you now, can't. You, you can't know. know it. You're too young. <clears throat> yeah. And it's people just, tell you those things and it doesn't, 
Yeah. It just doesn't register. No. It's like when we were having this kid, it's like people tell you, well, you're going to think this and this and this, and I've heard it all. And it's yeah. all true, Joe. Every <laughs> single bit of it is true. But it's like you don't believe it until yeah. it happens, you yeah. know? Yeah. You just you just can't. Like, you have to experience it. Yeah, when my friends who don't have kids ask me, I'm like, I can't even tell you. There's nothing yeah. I can tell you. It's it, It'll change everything about who you are. It does, man. It's it's definitely like earth shattering, yeah. Thing, but it's and there's never that right time, right? There's always could be an excuse to be like, well, sure. we'll wait a couple years till we're this, yeah. and then you get there, and it's like, well, we'll get a bigger. We need to get a bigger place, mm-hmm. and by that time you're forty, yeah, or something. You know, and when you're by that time, it's hard you know, to get pregnant. Yeah, if you're set up, if you're set up in yeah. the in the bunker that you want to have with, mm-hmm. you know, ten million dollars in the bank, you might be fifty something years old at that time. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, that's the theory behind population collapse, is that people start getting into their careers and women want to have children older and they want to have less children and they're, they're you know, it's I didn't even realize that was a thing until. Musk started talking about it. Well, Japan is apparently in dire straits because the way it works is you always have to look uh, 18 to 20 years out from now, mm-hmm. you know, and when people are looking at life now, you're like, oh, there's so many people. There's no population collapse. Right. But when no one is having kids and you realize when these people die, that's it. Yeah, because the mainstream belief is that the world's overpopulated, right? Right. Essentially. That's yeah. what I always remembered here and growing up is there was too many people. Well, there's... T- the real problem is not too many people. The real problem is lack of economic opportunity and, um, you know, this these places where people are starving and poor. Right. They, they, those are the people that, are, ironically, are having the most children. Yeah. Which is crazy. Yeah, it's nuts, man. I mean, it's <clears> – <throat> I remember thinking, like, my grandmother, you know, she's one of 12 or 14, right? Wow. And then my other my, – my dad's dad, he was one of – I mean, 10, yeah. right? And it's like my dad's best friend, born in Ohio, he's one of a ton. But they, it's like they all grew up on farms. Mm-hmm. So it's like you're having – essentially the kids are had to, like, help with the farm, right? Like that yeah. was the idea at that time for those people. It's like, well, if I got more kids, I got more people to help. Yeah, you're you know raising I mean? a staff. Right, It's which yeah. is wild, and that's just not happening. You know, and not that obviously that's the reason no one should be having children to have people to work at their home, you know, but it was a necessity at that time. Yeah. It's uh, it's always fascinating to me, the the roots of the kind of music that you enjoy country music, because it's country is so it's so ingrained in struggle and and life and hardship Mm -hmm. and heartbreak. And, you know, it's it's such a. It, it that that music resonates with people. Yeah, you know, there's a thing about the, you know that 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 kind of life that comes through in that music that's so appealing to people. Yeah, I remember. You know, I mean, I, I think back to, you know, my my grandfather's favorite artist was Chet Atkins, and when he passed away in 2015, the thing that he you know gave me was every Chet Atkins record ever on vinyl. And I remember thinking, like, what a cool thing, right? Like, mm-hmm. he loved that guy so much. I mean, one of the best guitar players ever, not to mention, but he loved that guy so much that he bought every And I'm talking, it's, those guys were putting fucking records out, dude, back then. I mean, they might put out two albums a year. 
Wow. I mean, go look how many Merle Haggard records there are, or Waylon Jennings records. There's a bunch, dude. Willie Nelson records. There's 90 <laughs> Willie Nelson records? It's really? It's 60 or 90. Wow. So either way, it's not a low number, right? <laughs> That's but like so crazy because those guys would they just went they just lived in the studio man and mm. they wrote and they cut their buddies songs that they loved and it was like it was quick because it was all one take we'll go in with the band get a take we like the take done print it now it's go in do the thing record the songs get every part right comp the vocals comp the guitar parts comp the drums like mm. it could take days and days and weeks to get one song right now because everything has to be perfect in everyone's mind, mm. right? And I think that's the uniqueness of, of, I mean, Stapleton. He goes in and cuts records with a band. Yeah. And they cut it live to, to tape, and it's like, that's why it's different. Yeah, it's, it's interesting what resonates, too. You know, uh, I'm a big Coulter Wall fan. and uh, Sleeping on the blacktop. Oh, my God, he's the shit. Yeah. I play that song, Kate McCannon, yep. and I tell people, this guy was 21 when he sang that. Yeah. And people are like, what the he fuck? He sounds like a cowboy from 1860 Like a that dude thing. who's been smoking four packs of camels a day. Yeah. Canadian guy, right? Yeah. I believe. Yeah. yeah. Have you had him on? No, man. He doesn't do interviews. Really? Yeah, he works on a ranch. That's super cool. <laughs> <laughs> dude, that guy's so much cooler than me. Damn it. That guy's so much cooler than me. I've been trying to get him on for like a year and a half, two years. He's like, he just doesn't do interviews. He's just a musician. He's just an artist. So like, he's pure yeah. in the strangest way. I just love to hang with him. I just yeah. want to meet him. I'm like, I just want to tell him like, hey man, like even if you don't want to do an interview, let's just right. talk. I just want to see what you're all about. If he works on a ranch, dude, he hunts, right? Ah, oh, guarantee. You would think so. It's, Maybe that's know, the pitch. Yeah. I mean, there's so many people from Canada that hunt too. Yeah. It's a different world up there. It really is, man. It's wild yeah. up there. It's wild place up there. How did you meet Renella? Okay, so I'm Renella, a stan, dude. I'm a Renella stan, meat eater. I've been watching it for years, man. And yeah. it's just like, I and you probably feel the same way, man. Like, there's a lot of like machismo, bravado stuff in like the hunting, like mm -hmm. industry. Yeah. That really like turns me off to it mm -hmm. because I feel like it's why so many people like have a disdain for hunting. It's not right. necessarily, obviously there's people that go, you shouldn't kill animals. You shouldn't do this. You shouldn't do that. Right. There's always going to be those people, but there's the people that go the type of people that hunt. Yeah. It's almost a stereotype. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I didn't get into hunting till I was, till I moved to Nashville. I didn't grow up hunting. My dad's from the Rust Belt in Ohio, like steel mill. You know, his dad was a truck driver. Like they didn't own land, you know, kind of thing. So he didn't hunt. That was just not a part of my upbringing, right? I used hunting and like inherently the guys I started writing songs with and the guys I connected with all love to hunt, right? So it started out as like, okay, well, cool. These guys will take me out. That'll be super fun. And as I fell in love with it as my curse because my career was taken off at the same time right and so life became more and more and more hectic and it became this cathartic experience of like being able to process some of what was happening to me and just enjoying that hunting was the opposite of everything else i was doing in my life mm. right it was like this pursuit of this thing that was so like pure it's calm like it's like i can 
I'm in control of like what's going on out here. And it's like, you know, obviously not the animal, but just being here and being like present and not having my phone and not worrying about posting a Instagram or whatever it is. Yeah. And I fell in love with that rapidly. And so as I begin to go, well, dude, I want to watch this on television. You know, I want to see this. So I start watching stuff and I'm like, dude, some of these guys are brutal on here. Like, it's just not for me. Like, yeah. this hunting, like, oh, we're going, if it's brown, it's down and fucking kill it. You know, and it's like this whole thing about it to me was odd. Yeah. Like, posing. I just, right. Like, it yeah. felt like this fake, uh-huh. it felt fake to me. Yeah. Right. So then I turn on, I see this show, Meat Eater, on Outdoor Channel. And I'm watching it, and it's like, and I see the intro where it's like, I'm Steven Ranella, and hunting's not just about the pursuit of an animal, and all that. And I was like, okay, that's different than all the other shows that I've seen. You know, so I watched it, and then there's this mega intelligent cat on there, and he's cooking, dude, and he's taught, and he's like a wealth of knowledge, right? Yeah. And that's the thing that, like, that gets me, like, my dad's a big, like, thinker, you know? Um, and he's always been interested in just learning about new stuff. Like he's always just taking in information and learning things. And so I think I kind of inherited that from him. And so then I became kind of obsessed with like this show, this meteor show. So I started watching an outdoor channel and then it comes on Netflix, this new, the new kind of version that comes on Netflix. And I'm like, dude, this is, this is like earth shattering for me. This is like, it's marrying the intelligence of what this is and it's exposing people to in my opinion what's the right side of hunting to be on but the thing that i love about it so much and i just for you so then my career is starting to go and go and go i saw you on there you know i was like man that's cool he's having guests on you know that's pretty sick you know and all his buddies were like wicked smart and like knew everything and they do all this to go to alaska and all these incredible places dude and so I just had my PR team. I was like, just reach out to this guy. Like, please get me. Like, how do I get on this show? Like, I want to be on this. I want to meet this guy and, like, be buddies with him and stuff. And it took, like, two years <clears throat> to finally get, like, okay, we got a time. He wants to do it. And what was it like when you first met? Well, I met him, him when he didn't have meat either. I met him when he was doing a show called The Wild Within. There was a show that was on, I forget what network it was on, but it was a show where he was kind of recreating how, um, like, the the people that traveled across the West for the first time, the, the <clears> early <throat> settlers, right. how they hunted, and, you know, mm-hmm. he, like, he shot a moose with a musket and right. and turned its its uh, cape into, uh, like, a raft and, yeah. and was drifting with it. Yep. And, and I was like, what an interesting guy. Like, really, the, the whole thing behind it, he was... You could tell his his integrity and his his true uh, appreciation for the outdoors and for yeah. wild animals and it feels conservation. Pure. It feels very, very pure. pure. And he's so well-read. I'm like, this is different than every other hunting show that I'd ever seen. Yeah. The same thing yeah. to me. And then I met, he didn't even know what a podcast was. <laughs> it, and But it, to his defense, nobody did back then. It was, yeah. it was very early. And... Um, I think I met him in 2011, and then uh, he said he was doing a new show, and he asked me if I wanted to hunt. Mm-hmm. And I, I said I've always wanted to hunt, and I never really knew how to get started. Right. And so, it's intimidating, dude. It's a did. hard thing to get into, man. It's a big learning curve. Yep. There's a lot. And yep. then to try to figure out what to do and how to do it and 
there's so much to learn and there's so there's so much involved in it. And so he took me and my friend Brian Callen to Montana mm-hmm. and we went mule, mule deer yep. hunting. And yep. pff, from then on, I've never stopped hunting. Yeah, that was 2012. Yeah, I was hooked. What was it like? Okay, I'm curious to know what it was like. Like, so when you like you guys first meet, was he like a little cold when you first met him? A little standoffish. Yeah, because yeah. you know he thinks everyone's a douchebag because a lot of for people sure. are douchebags. And I, it was it was the same <laughs> thing for me. It was like it was like we got there, we hunted in Wyoming, mm-hmm. and you guys uh, hunted pronghorn, right? Yeah, yeah, and had never I'd never done that. Um, yeah, that's you know, a so cool it's animal. all new. Yeah, it's amazing, dude. And that's a f- ancient, ancient animal. Yeah, it is. That's the one of the animals that survived the uh, mass extinction of megafauna twelve thousand years ago. Yeah, it's because it doesn't have any known really relatives, right? It I mean, also in the states. It least. has speed that rivals like fucking cheetahs. Yeah, because they used to run from cheetahs. That's that's the animal. It's yeah. fu- such a fucking ancient animal. It's so cool looking, man. Yeah, because not a cervid. No. Yeah. No. That's what I was so interested. Did you have you have you hunted these? No, I've not. Dude, have you? So I didn't. Re- and Renella told me this in the episode when we. He was like, "Smell it. it smells like Fritos." Mm. It does. Mm. It smells like Fritos, man. It's so it was so strange, and it, I didn't realize their hair was hollow. Mm. So he's like, "If you shoot one and it gets in the water, you're screwed, dude, because it weighs like three times as much." Because its hair absorbs all the water, so it just sinks. So it's just like, well, if you got to get it out oh, and you got to drag it, up with water. it weighs three times as much as it did before you shot oh, it. Wow! Because then the entire thing is just saturated with water. That's interesting. Which I thought was crazy. I wonder why. I don't know. It's got to serve some sort of purpose, yeah, right? Some ancient evolutionary purpose. Yeah. But I thought Steve was. He was like, it was crazy. It was like we got there and we we're all so hyped because I brought my buddy Stan and Reed who. I credit mostly with me getting into hunting, like two of my best buddies that write songs with them. Um, you know, we hang our kids, hang out together. We hang out together a ton and, um, they've been hunting their whole life. And, um, I took them with me. I said, Hey, if I do this, I want to bring my buddies. It's a great episode. Thanks man. Yeah. I I love that one. And, and, uh, but yeah, we were like, man, Steve, like, does he not like us? Dude. It was like, (laughs) it was that first like two hours where we were like, you know, but then I realized more, I'm like, dude, you're around the, like, people you don't know with, like, guns and stuff. You know when he chilled yeah. out is when we went and shot that night because we got those 6'5", 300 Weatherbees, that the meat eater gun that they made with Weatherby. Mm. And <clears throat> we went and shot that night and sighted him in. And then he was like, all right, these guys know what they're doing. And then he was, like, immediately great. Like oh, it that's was like, interesting. It was yeah. like he felt, like, comfortable or, like, with us, like he knew we weren't like bozos who were just right. out there and like didn't know at all what we were doing, right. and like we were gonna in some way be dangerous, like to him right. or to his crew or whatever. It was like immediately, it was like he was a completely different guy. After I didn't, that. I didn't know anything. I didn't own a rifle at the time. I, you know, I didn't know anything. I'd never shot an animal. I'd been fishing. That's it. Yeah, never been hunting at all. And then next thing you know, we're in Montana and the Missouri breaks. Right. You know, hiking up mountains looking for mule deer yeah for days and it was it was fascinating yeah i mean he's just he's a serious dude but he loves you he immediately contacted me after you you did a show yeah yeah and he's like you should get that guy on dude he's man he's great and i mean he's just been so gracious to to me and i was up in montana we had a couple days off and 
I hit him up. I was like, hey, I'm in town. Like, what's something I can do? And he's like, dude, he's like, bring you. He's like, you can park your bus outside. He's like, come over. He's like, dude, he cooked dinner for me and my bus driver, my security guy. Like, two guys <laughs> he's never met. Like, it's like his kids are running around, like, shooting us with Nerf guns and stuff. Like, and I was like, this guy's great, man. You know, yeah. I was like, it was just great, man. I, I, I think I he's him. the best spokesman <clears throat> for hunting. Yeah, I because agree. he's he's the kind of guy that's so well read and so articulate that he can have a conversation with someone who has a completely opposite opinion of what hunting is. Right. And at the end of it, they come away with a, a just a much more comprehensive perspective. Right. Of what it's about and what conservation's about and why why he loves this pursuit and why it resonates. Yeah. Yeah, man, he's wicked. Uh, um, I, I love him, dude. He's just, he's an unbelievable guy. Yeah, I've been hunting with him a bunch of times now, and including off camera. We went hunting recently yeah. in South Texas, and he's a great guy. He is, man. He's cool. Yeah. Have you ever rattled in bucks before? I haven't. I oh haven't. God, we rattled in uh, whitetails down yeah. in South Texas. It's the most fun shit ever. Because you, you basically set up, you have to have an arrow knocked, and you're fucking, right. your release on the clip, because they come running in. Right. He sprint Because it was in the middle of the rut, so you just clack, 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 you take the, 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 right. the fake antlers and you rack them, and then these deer just come f sprinting in, full clip, looking to fight and fuck. Dude. <laughs> I, I've tried it a million times, right? It just has never worked. You know, like Tennessee is not exactly a hotbed for rattling in bucks, you know. Um, I mean, I can't say it doesn't work for some of my buddies, but it's never worked for me. It works amazing in South Texas. He said it works there better than anywhere he's ever been. And he doesn't – no one knows why, you know, but it's uh, – I think you just got to catch it at the right time. You got to catch it right at the time when they're fucking and fighting. Right. Yeah, it's and, like a week or two week, mm -hmm. like, max where it yeah. really, really works. And otherwise, yeah. they're like, why is that going on? Yeah, It's exactly. not supposed to be going on. Exactly. You know, I'm not going out there. That's weird, <laughs> you know. Deer are interesting, man. They're yeah. interesting animals, man. The more you watch them, they just, nothing makes sense to me yeah. with it. The more I watch them, you know. The things that are supposed to happen often don't, I find, you know. Like you're thinking, this is gonna be, you know, I'm hunting the wind. I'm, I got the stand. I got the access. I got the wind. I got the spot. I got the stand. I got the food plot. Yeah. You know, like in Tennessee, you can't hunt over bait, so it's like you plant the food plot. You know, it's knee high by July and the corn, and it's like you got it. It's everything's right, and then it's like it's rut. You know, it's like, and it's just nothing. You know, sometimes you go out there and you're like, what is, how is this possible, you know? Well, I have friends that are absolutely obsessed with whitetail, especially my friend John Dudley. He has an enormous plot of land that he is dedicated just to bow hunting. And right. that guy cultivates it all year round. He yep. works in the food plots. He has stands set up specifically in areas so that he oh, knows yeah. which way the wind is blowing. He's going to go to that stand. Mm -hmm. he, yep. he goes to the stand on an electric bike so yep. he doesn't leave behind any trace of smell. Yep. So his feet never touch the ground. I do the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like it works for him. <laughs> it works for him. Well, he's a master. I mean, yeah. John. John's like one of the best archers and best archery coaches. Yeah. In 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 the space, and he's, he's he's an amazing guy. But man, that guy is obsessed. And whitetail's the most hunted big game animal in yep. North America. I had a heartbreaker this year, man. A whitetail trip. I went to Oklahoma for a week, and it was like, it was jam up, man. It was like, there's gonna be deer. Like, you know, it just felt everything's right, right. 
we got this guy taking us out. He was awesome, man. He knew his stuff, like killer guy, you know. And it's like we're like we're going in. Me and my buddies were going in. So as I went with Dana Reed, same guys I, I did meteor with, we went. And we're like, dude, we're gonna do. We're tagging out first night, dude. Like they're sending us all these deer picks, like, you know. And we're like, man, this is gonna be great. So first night, don't really see anything, right? It's like, oh, okay, we're great. So morning, dude, we'll be tagged out, you know, morning. And it's freezing. This is so it's archery only. You know, Oklahoma's only got like two week rifle season, I think. So we're doing archery. Morning comes, nothing. And we're like, man, like not really seeing like a ton of deer and stuff. And we're still like, we're getting tonight's tonight. You know, we got five days to be out there. And we were thinking we're going to be going home early, dude. Like we're going to be here the first night. We're going to tag out and be like trying to spend two days just hanging out, you know, or something. And so about the third day, we're like, well, let's all switch. We'd all been in the same spots, you know, different stands. Cause they had a, f- a few different leases kind of around this area of Oklahoma. So we were all going to different spots and we're like, well, let's all switch up. Right. So I get in this tree in the afternoon, sitting there. My buddy Dan, he's like, he's probably 500 yards away from me in another tree. And the the, the grass kind of like really soft, rolling hills. Like it looks flat almost if you're in the car. And then you realize there's a little bit of elevation change going on. So there's like this draw in between me and Dan. I'm there and it's freezing, dude. Wind's blowing 25 miles an hour. I mean, just hammering. But the wind's perfect for where I'm hunting at, right? Because it's kind of like this this grove of, like, cedars, you know, and that's where all the deer are because everything else is just ag fields around. I'm sitting there. I got these three does. I watch them come, like, off this hill. They come through the cedars, hop this fence. Dude, they're 25 yards in me, like, right on me, dude, you know. So I'm already, like, kind of standing up because I'm, I'm not, you know, we're not even hunting a doe at this point, you know. And all of a sudden, man, <clears throat> behind this kind of berm over to my left, there's like a little pond. Behind this berm walks out, dude. I'm talking, you're going to think I'm lying, 230-inch deer, man. What? No lie. I know everybody watching this is going to be like, you're lying. There's no, you didn't see a 230-inch deer. 230-inch deer comes out. He's at 60 yards broadside. I've got my arrow. I'm on the D loop. I'm, I'm up. But I'm not drawing on him because he's broadside at 60. The wind's go 25 miles an hour. Right. So it's so it's like that arrow's going to go, right. right? I'm not good enough to compensate for that kind of wind. I've also got does at 25 yards underneath my feet. And I'm going, this buck's coming in, dude. He's walking right into this thing. There's no chance he doesn't walk in here. There's does in here feeding underneath my feet. And he's looking right at him, broadside like this. So I'm hooked up. He kind of looks over. He's looking at the does, and then he looks back really quick, and he takes off, like dead sprint. Just stays at sixty and goes all the way. Watch him go all the way into the cedars. Did the wind swirl? No, the wind didn't swirl. And I'm going, what is going on? I called Dan. I'm like shaking at this point. I've got my bow back on the thing because the the does spooked out and they followed him. When they saw, they looked back at him, and when he took off, they took off. I called Dan. I was like, dude, I saw just once in 10 lifetime deer just come out and spooked at 60 yards. Like, it can't be me. If the wind's great, like, nothing saw me, dude. It wasn't me. And then he's like, he's on the phone with me. He goes, dude, there's coyotes running through the draw right now. I can see them. And I'm like, oh, gosh. So I sat in that stand 
for the next three days, just every morning, three hours, night, three hours. Fucking kind <clears throat> So last morning, I'm up there. I look up back to where Dan was sitting at. There's kind of a, another ag fence into a cut. It's like a cut cotton field. So it's not even like, even though it's cut, there's not even food in it, right? There's not beans in it or corn in it. It's a cut cotton field. So really, in theory, nothing that these deer would be eating in this field, really. So Dan's hunting somewhere else. So I call our guy. I see all these deer, and I'm, I'm glassing, probably, like I said, 500-ish yards out. I'm glassing, and I see all these does, all these does, and I see him, dude, just. I mean, you could see from 500 yards he's a giant without binoculars. You know what I mean? Like, just no doubt that this is the same deer. And he's cruising, and there's like, if you can imagine there's this wheat grass on the fence row right there that's grown up probably four foot, five foot maybe. And there's a, ga- there's a gap in it where there's a fence, and probably six feet there's another gap where there's a fence. So it's all grass the whole way around except for where those two fences are. So I watch every doe pile past the first fence, past the second fence. He's behind him. He comes past the first fence, never goes past the second fence. And I go, I call my guy. I said, dude, come get me. This deer's bedded in this little tiny spot. I know exactly where he is. And he goes, all right. He said, we're going back tonight because this deer's not going to move. He said, we're going to do spot and stalk up to this spot because I know he's laying right there. Stalk up, get probably 75 yards from that spot. And we, we pretty good feeling he's going to jump this fence and come right across this field to where we're at. And we're just going to be right there. You know, I'm sitting crisscross applesauce, like ready. He goes, if we got 15 minutes of light left, he's like, we're going to creep up there and see if we can spook him up kind of thing. We get up there. Dude, my heart is going a million miles an hour. It probably is right now just from being fat. But it was really going at that time, dude. You know what I mean? Like, I'm like, I'm I'm one blood pressure point away from a stroke at this point. Like, hiking up this thing. We get up there and we're like, nothing's not there. I'm like, how can he not be there? So we're looking. We look down the fence. And this property line right there is like, so it's like this fence we have access to this fence here. There's an adjacent fence right here that's not, that they don't have access on. So we hop, look, he's 100 yards in the cut cotton field, just standing out in the cotton field. This is our last night. We're going to the plane after the hunt. And it was over, man. 230-inch deer. Never, I'll never see him again. Never see anything like it. Wow, this is not high fence. This is not a pin pay to play like pick your deer thing like i was hope people been excited to shoot a 145 on this trip you know what i mean biggest deer i've ever killed is 155 you know and so i'm like i got pictures of him oh somewhere <clears throat> yeah i want to see it. he's nuts let me see if i can find him on here it's fascinating how the the appeal of those old mature bucks because you know they're so smart they don't get to be that big Dude. Unless they make all the right moves for five forever, or six years. Dude. Forever. They yeah. make it forever, dude. And it's just, let me see if I can find this thing. But that's how they get to be that big, by just doing weird just shit. Just being smart, Not dude. being predictable. Where's this guy at, man? I got him in my text messages if I don't have him here. Yeah, I got him in my text messages. 
Dead air. You ever watch Always Sunny? I don't worry about dead air. <laughs> I remember the scene in Always Sunny where they, they're trying to do a podcast and nobody's saying anything. And Danny <laughs> DeVito just goes, dead air. <laughs> that always rings in my head when I'm doing an interview for some reason. Okay, so I'm close here. I don't think people are ever going to appreciate that don't hunt what it means to see an animal that's that unusual. Holy fuck. Yep. Holy shit, dude. That's not a joke. Yeah. That's a gigantic deer. Mm-hmm. Wow. Wow. Yeah. This is that this year? Mm-hmm. So he's still alive, you think? Mm-hmm. Do they have any trail cam photos of him? Yeah, this is from that's from a few weeks before we were out there. Yeah, this is where this is where I was, right? So this is my kind of spot here. What time of year were you there? We were there December, like second week of December. Yeah, you going and, back? Oh, I'm gonna have to. Yeah. They said, "Here's the thing with this deer, right? Here's another angle of them. <sighs> they go, here's the thing with this deer. They go, even if he loses 20 inches, he's a 210 inch deer. Right. But there's a potential that he could be a 250 inch deer next year. Right. If right? he's only five. Yeah. God. This damn. deer. This deer breaks the county record. By 60 inches, and it's a top 10 archery deer in the history of Oklahoma if it wow. goes down. What's the number one? Number one, I could look it up. It's in the two, like, 40s range, like 245 wow. range of all-time archery deer in the state of Oklahoma. I didn't know Oklahoma had deer that were that big. I don't think anybody does, so let's edit this part out. <laughs> <laughs> don't go to Oklahoma. It stinks to hunt in northern Oklahoma. It stinks. Yeah. Dudley has a spot in Oklahoma. It's dude. I didn't know about it yeah. until this year. Not yeah, that. he's got a lease in Oklahoma. He's got some big fucking deer on that lease too. We just had a friend that that put us on to this guy, and he was like, "Man, this guy's great, and he's you know knows his stuff, and he's eager, and you know he's excited to have y'all down." And I was like, "Cool, man. Like you gotta think, man. Where I'm hunting Tennessee, dude. A big deer in Tennessee is a 140 inch deer, right? You know. So like, I killed a 155 in Mississippi and thought I killed a Tyrannosaurus Rex, dude." You right. know, yeah. so like when you're going out west, dude, and seeing these deer, it's unbelievable to to a guy like myself to even see that. You know, I mean, growing a 145 on my own place would be deer of a lifetime for yeah. most guys in in southeast North Carolina, Tennessee, Georgia. Like that's the biggest deer you'll ever see. Yeah the the obsession that people have with uh, cultivating land developed specifically to encourage white-tailed deer to move there. I mean, there's a whole industry behind it mm-hmm. where people buy enormous plots of land and yep. hire people to do land management to just yep. to set it up for deer. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't say I don't do it myself. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's like, it's just so intoxicating of like not, and it's like, man, the high fence thing, it just doesn't do anything for me. No. I've never done it. I don't want to do it. It yeah. just doesn't. It's just not the same, dude. It's a different thing. It's yeah. just not even comparable. Yeah. It's like not knowing what's going to walk out is the, almost the exciting part for sure. to me. Yeah, it's the wildness. The fact yeah. that you're you're engaging with a wild animal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the people that 
they feed them with feeders and they have a high fence and it's only yep. 500 acres, you yep. know, where they all are. They can't get out. Like, right. Yeah. It's like, do you want to shoot Ricky or right. Johnny or Bobby or, or Greg or which one? And <laughs> yeah, they, they just name go. Them. <laughs> yeah. And they're like, that's Greg's whistle. He'll come out on that one, you know? Well, they literally hear the feeders going off when they yep. come in, which is just. Like, yep. It's there's a lot of that in Texas. Yeah, Tennessee. There's no you can have you can feed them like not. It's two weeks before season. You have to have all feed up. Like you can't have a grain of corn on the ground that's mm. not in a food plot. Mm. You know you can hunt a food plot if you plant it and cultivate it and stuff. And you can feed. You know you can do protein corn stuff. Like obviously you can't do it during turkey season either. So you have to have it up for that as but well. But through the winter, you but can through supplement. the you can supplement. Well, not even winter. Cause right, that's December. season, right? Yeah, right. our season ends like first week of January in yeah. Tennessee. So after that, you could have you could have stuff out. So you really you're feeding through the spring and summer. Have you ever done any uh, out west hunting, like elk hunting? No, I want to real bad though, like real bad. If you think you get obsessed with whitetail, yeah, I keep hearing about wait, it. Wait till you see a four hundred inch bull raking its way through the trees yeah looking like a yeah. fucking dinosaur yeah and then you hear him scream <sighs> hit, the, hit the bugle <laughs> dude your, i can't even imagine your blood boils it's yeah. the it's the wildest feeling and you know i was we were talking before that Derek wolf who you know was in the fucking super bowl and mm -hmm. they, they asked him what is better sacking tom brady or yeah. shooting an elk, and he's like, "Sack Don Brady's pretty fucking cool, but it's not even close. Yeah, it's yeah. not even close. Uh -huh. There's something about those animals, man. What's well, a turkey hunting? They call it poor man's elk hunting. Mm, right, because there's the call and response thing, and yeah, you know, I've shot a turkey. It's not, it's not the same thing. Turkeys are cool. Yeah, they're delicious. It's uh -huh. great. Yep. it's fun. They are delicious. It's not sure. the same thing. Yeah, not it's by not. any stretch of. But the that's why they call it the poor man's elk hunting. Yeah, <laughs> well, it's just because you call them in. Yeah, that's all. That's it's where that the, that's interactive where nature of it. I think is what people get addicted yeah. to, and that can be similar to the elk hunting experience too. Well, I think it's just elk is just a majestic animal too. Yeah. When you see them, just the fucking antlers are insane. Yeah, and they're just massive, and it's just so delicious too. The meat is yeah. so good. Yeah. I've had yeah. some I've had some buddies, you know, cook for me that have got one and it's yeah, I'd love to get one of my own for sure. Yeah. It'd be real nice. The problem with elk hunting is it's in the mountains. Yep. And it's a lot of hoofing. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yep. Like, not a lot of three hundred pound guys elk hunting. <laughs> you know what I mean? I can't imagine. Not successfully. Unless they're six eight or something, dude. You know what I mean? Right. Like yeah. Derek. Yeah. It's uh it's not easy. Yeah. No. It's the hardest yeah. in terms of like just a physical workload. It's also part of it though, right? Mm -hmm. It's part of like how much work you put into it yeah. to get this thing out of it. Well, that, when I became friends with Cam Haynes, that's why I was so baffled. I was like, why is this guy running all the time? Yeah. He t tells me he runs all the time for hunting. I'm like, what? Like, how yeah. does that make any sense? And then you go hunting for the first time in the mountains. You're like, oh. Oh, this is why this oh. guy. And I thought I was in pretty good shape. Yeah. I was like, oh my God, this is crazy. It's like Steve, dude. That guy can just go. Yeah. I mean, he just can just mountain go. go. Yeah. yeah. And he's been doing that his whole life, too. Yeah. You know? Puts in so many hours a year in the mountains. Yeah. That Buffalo book he wrote is unbelievable. It's too. very good. Yeah, it's so good. Yeah, he got the rights to that, luckily, and now re-released re it with his audio. Because when he first sold it, um, they had an actor read it. You know, like some voiceover really? actor. It was terrible. Yeah, so he re-recorded it in oh, his own cool. voice, which that's is amazing. Cool. Yeah, but that's a thing that happens with a lot of, like, 
first time authors is they don't trust you to read it. They want to get someone right. who's a, some sort of a professional. Mm -hmm. So he lost that argument, and then as time went on and he became more prominent and famous, then he was able to acquire the rights yeah. through Meat Eater and then re-release it, which yep. is excellent. Yeah, that's that's awesome, man. That guy, that, um, that, that, I don't know if it was like a book, like that Close Encounters thing. Yeah. Have, have you listened to that? Yeah. Dude, that is chilling, man. <laughs> that guy that goes through the, like, hypothermia mm. thing, dude, is one of the most intense things I've ever listened to, man. The One of the most intense stories he's ever told me was when they were on a Fognac Island in uh, Alaska. Is this the grizzly bear? The, the grizzly bear attack. Oh, yeah. man. Yeah, I was, like, on the edge of my seat, dude, when they were telling us that 11-foot bear running through their camp. Dude, I can't even Because it, it had claimed their elk, and they didn't know yet. Yeah. They shot it the day before. They came back yep. to pack it out. Mm. And they're sitting there eating sandwiches. Yeah. Yeah. No one has a gun on them. Yeah. And this thing just comes running through the camp. What they Whoa. say? Giannis, like, hit it with a, like, walking stick. Yeah, from, like, five feet away. Yeah. It was, it, like, he said he could, like, feel the jaws snapping as it ran past him. <sighs> Yeah, that freaked me out. Dirtmouth was on its back. Yeah. Something happened, yeah. and, like, he got knocked onto yeah, the like, back of this thing and rode it for, like, 10 yards. Yeah, they ran, like, intersecting paths. Like, yeah. as he was running away from the bear, the bear was running away from them. Yeah. And the bear, like, hit him or something, and he flipped on its back. For, like, 10 yards, he said. Yeah. He imagined that memory. Yeah. No. Of like this bear is running and somehow or another you're on its back going, right? What the fuck? Yeah, he's. I remember him telling like they were telling us that part and he was, yeah, I hit this bear and you know everybody's kind of laughing and he's laughing and stuff and then like right when the story stops he looks at me and goes I think about it every day. Oh, of course. Like he was just like he went just immediately like yeah. It was funny to tell it and then he was like. It was also the most terrifying thing of all time. You know, that guy, he also works for that show Trafficked. So Really? Yeah, yeah. I didn't he, know that. Yeah, Mariana Van Zeller took yeah. him in the jungles of Colombia where they grow and manufacture cocaine. Jeez. And yeah, so he's I've filming seen that show. There. Yeah, I've seen a bunch of bunch of episodes of that show. So that dude has been on some of the most insane adventures ever. Yeah. To go from riding a grizzly bear's back to packing out cocaine with mules these these you know drug mules yeah. that are taking it in backpacks through the jungle i can't the... imagine how like high intensity that moment was Jesus like to, like to be like to know that these people could just like shoot you because they want to or because they have to right yeah because someone comes along and catches them and they're interacting right. with reporters and they just say right. you're, gonna, you're gonna kill these fucking people in front of us yeah. Jesus, dude. Yeah. That's a whole another kind of stress, dude, that I don't want to be a part of. Mariana's a gangster. That lady's been doing that boots on the ground type dangerous journalism for fucking years. I found out about her because of the uh, documentary they did on Vanguard called the OxyContin Express. They yeah. detailed those pain clinics they had in Florida. Right. And how they would sell people oxys, and mm -hmm. there was no database. Yep. So you could go from one pain clinic to the next yep. pain clinic and just stack up thousands of pills. That's wild. And then they would just drive up the coast, drive yep. up Florida, rather, into the northern states and sell them. And that was the OxyContin Express. Dude, how do you get in? Like, how, like that's got to be such a specific, like sect of like humanity that wants to like get into that kind of journalism right yeah you got to be very like, very very brave 
Yeah, it's not like that's not you're not reading the morning news, dude. No. That's not that's not scratching the itch for you. No, you know? she's trying to figure things out and then expose people to information that's otherwise unavailable. You know, she she found that there was LA cops that were selling drugs to the Mexican cartel, excuse me, they were selling guns to the Mexican cartels. So they would confiscate guns from criminals and then they would fill up a trunk with AKs and ARs and pistols and then they would drive to Mexico because to get into Mexico is easy. Coming right. to America is where it's difficult and they right. check you. But get into Mexico, you just drive right through. So they were driving right through with trunkfuls of confiscated weapons and they delivered them to the cartels. Wow, dude. That's it's just hard to believe that that kind of stuff happens. It's happening right now. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it happens. she said it happens all the time, and that's the main way they acquire weapons. That's yeah. wild, man. It's crazy. Fucking cops. Yeah. The world's crazy, man. It's a crazy place, dude. You know? Yeah. It's wild that we think about all the different things, the conflicts that are happening overseas, when one of the most wild conflicts is happening right south of our border. Yeah. And, you know, you could literally walk over there. Yeah. Um, you, you, I'm sure you heard about those folks that got killed where the, these people went down there. I think I think the story is one of the women went over there for plastic surgery. I think she went over there. They crossed the border. I think she's getting a butt lift or something because it's, like, cheaper in Mexico. Right. And they got mistaken for a rival cartel. They got mistaken for some sort of rival drug dealers or something, and they killed oh, two of them. And they kidnapped these Americans and killed two of them. Jeez, dude. Yeah. That's that's crazy, That's a real man. recent story. Here it is. How a trip to Mexico for cosmetic surgery turned deadly for U.S. Quartet. Deaths of two of four Americans kidnapped at Matamoros pl uh, place spotlight on cartels' impunity and on medical tourism. Jesus Christ. Dude, that is wild, man. Fucking crazy. Yeah. It's so really they came from wild. Lake City, South Carolina to Matamoros... Uh, Tamaulipas, just south of the U.S.-Mexico frontier. They arrived in the border city on the 3rd of March, but never made it to the clinic. Members of a violent drug cartel that controls the area mistook the group of Americans as rival traffickers, killed two of them, and kidnapped McGee and one of her friends. McGee and Eric Williams were rescued within days, and the bodies of her cousin, Shahid Woodward and friend Zindel Brown were later repatriated. On Thursday, five men who allegedly carried out the attack were dumped on a Matamora street along with a surreal letter of apology purportedly from the Gulf Cartel. We ask the public to be calm, the letter said in Spanish. We are committed that the mistakes caused by indiscipline won't be repeated and that those responsible pay no matter who they are. Fuck, man. That's man. wild, dude. Yeah, I mean, that's wild stuff, dude. It's it's a sketchy place, man, and it's it's fueled by the fact that drugs are illegal. That's what's crazy. It's like our idea that we're gonna, you know, keep people safe by making drugs illegal is propping up an illegal enterprise worth untold billions of dollars right. just south massive of us. Massive amounts, dude. Massive amounts of money. Like you can't even process how much money. Yeah, it it's crazy. You know. Yeah, 
and it's also responsible for the fentanyl deaths of a hundred thousand people a year. It's like fucking a man. Crazy times, man. Yeah, it really is, man. I've always wanted to go to Mexico to hunt because uh, you know in Sonora, yeah, like coos deer, yeah, and stuff coos, like that, and, and a giant mule deer. Yeah, they have giant mule deer south of the border. Really? Yeah, huge, huh. huge. Have you seen <clears throat> the mule deer in Mexico? Mm-mm. See like if you find, just Google giant mule deer in Mexico. Yeah, people go. A buddy of mine just went over there and shot a fucking monster. And he said, I don't know if I'm going back again. He said, uh, we had to meet members of the cartel, and we, we pulled up to this place, and these dudes, look at the size of these mule deer. I mean, Oh, goodness. Yeah, look at these things. And uh, it's all in the, in the desert of Mexico. It's like one of the most known places for enormous mule deer in Sonora, which is interesting, right, because they have these tiny little coos deer. And then they have these, and then these ma- oh, monster. look at that one. Goodness. Yeah. Click on that one, Jamie. Yeah, that one right there. Look at that fucking. Good night, dude. I mean, that's hard. Monstrous, monstrous mule deer. That's like semi elk, dude. You're Mm -hmm. like getting into elk territory with that. You know what I mean? And it's the the territory is gorgeous, and it's like the landscape is beautiful. But you know, you might pass some dudes that are you know parked in front of a G wagon with you know AKs hanging from their shoulders, and you're like, oh my god. And then they ask you questions and talk to you, right. and you're like, oh, fuck. Yeah. And they just might kidnap you. God, that'd be real scary. Yeah, I mean, most of the time they leave those people alone because there's a lot of revenue and tourism, and they don't want to fuck that up, and they also don't want to bring heat down on them, which right. is what happened when these Americans got kidnapped. All of a sudden the right. world is aware, and that can be very dangerous for them. Yeah. But I think them dropping those five goss off on the street is probably going to squash it, you know, <sighs> as weird as that is. That's crazy, man. It's crazy stuff, man. It's just, it, like, again, it's just hard to believe that that stuff's going on. Right you know? now, right there. <clears throat> and Somewhere, it's on the right. same land mass yeah. as America. Yeah. That's what's crazy. The yeah. same, liter- literally just further down south in Texas. It's like, happening right closer, there. Like, it's closer to where we're at right now than I was this morning from where we're at right now. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? You know? That's yeah. like I live in Nashville, Tennessee, yeah. you know. But just some invisible border that we created decided yeah. this is the line of lawlessness. <laughs> yeah, it's wild stuff, dude. It is wild. I still would like to go down there. I just want. I would like to know if there's a way to do it safely. Beautiful country, though. Oh man. my god, I've been down there a couple times. It's gorgeous, man. Well, Steve goes down there every year to hunt coos deer, and he says it's it's sketchy. Yeah, it's sketchy, but they do it at this ranch that has no electricity. It's this gorgeous place, yeah. and they have this Mexican lady who cooks for them, uh, all like real traditional Mexican stuff, food. Dude. Yeah, he says it's insane. We went. I went down there a few years ago to um, do a. <clears throat> I have a deal with Columbia Sportswear, and uh, I went down there to shoot some content for them. Um, we were flying into. We flew into Cabo, right? And so the thing was, that we're going to go down there and like you know try to like do more like catch marlin you know it was gonna be mm. the idea right and i'm like well this is a sick like endorsed like i get getting paid to like go like fish for marlin like in mexico that's awesome you know so i took a couple of my buddies down there with me um jonathan and dan and ray uh three of my dearest friends and um we go down and like all we had to do was like wear our columbia stuff and they just took pictures of us like hanging out right so we get into Cabo again. None of us have ever been to Mexico before. And, you know, you hear those kind of stories. So you're like, man, it's like, are we going to be cool? And they're like, yeah, well, you know, Cabo, like it's like resort town. You're good, whatever. 
So we get down, get out of the plane. There's a, you know, there's the guy with the van and it's like got like the name of like our party or whatever. And it's like Columbia or something. And some of the Columbia like staff were coming down there with us too, like the head of PFG and, and those kind of folks. And so we get in the van and like, we're like, oh, there's Cabo and stuff. And we're driving and like we get on the interstate and I'm like, man, Cabo's seems like it's behind us kind of right now, you know? Like, seems like we're not going kind of towards it, you know. And I was like, man, that's kind of that's kind of odd. And then we're driving for like an hour and a half, and then it's like, dude, we are in like nowhere, like nowhere desert, dude. And I'm like, is this right, dude? Like, are we? Because all we got's the guy driving us, dude. Right. It's the guy driving us, and like me and my buddies and my manager, Cappy, and we're like. I think because the Columbia people traveled separate from us, right? So we're like, we're just hoping that this guy is like taking us to the right place. And all of a sudden, like we pull into this just like town along the coast. And when I say town, there's not a McDonald's. There's not even like a store, right? It's like a little, the roads are like sand roads, dude. And the when I say the houses are like, like you think of a beach house, right? It's like there's the beach, there's the house, and there's like the dunes, and then like you walk through the dunes, and there's the beach. These houses were on the beach, bro. Like they were on the sand. Like all the furniture in the house was poured concrete with cushions on it. Whoa. So if like the hurricane were to come, it would just you'd just put new cushions on it, and the house <laughs> would still be there. You know what I mean? It was like, and we walk in, and it's like, sure as shit, the Columbia like folks are there, and there's like. These two guys there, and they're whipping up like they're making homemade tortilla chips. They're t- cutting the tortillas and like dropping them in the oil, chopping up like making homemade guac and stuff. And I'm like, whoa, this is sick, you know? But where are we? Like, where is this place, you know? So we do our we do our thing that evening, get settled in. We go out fish. I call I called a like a ninety pound tuna or something the next day. It was awesome. I had so much fun. So we get back that night, and it's when I say it's nighttime, and we're, I mean, it's desolate, right? There's houses kind of along the beach, but you can tell that not all of them are like occupied all the time, right? And it's not like these houses you think of in the States. Like they're not these big palatial, like beach homes like we have. They're kind of quaint, like smaller homes. And all of a sudden we're sitting out there, like we got a little fire going, some of my buddies picking the guitar or whatever. I remember looking, you can just see like miles down the beach and I just see just this one headlight coming down the beach from like miles and miles down. And I'm like, shit, dude, like we like, cause all the Columbia people, they were staying in like a hotel, like a resort, like 30 minutes away. So we're at the house alone in this town and this light just keeps coming and keeps coming. And there's a beach little access road right beside our house where we're staying. And this ATV comes up and it's still like the lights, like, and it pulls up and it stops right where we're at. And I'm like, oh shit, dude. Like, are we about to like have to pay somebody, dude? Like what, what the hell's going on? Turns off, gets off and it's this older, like white couple from Minnesota. And I'm like, okay, this is mega weird. And like, what are you, what are you guys doing down here? We're like, oh, we're, we're down here writing songs, whatever. And. It was really, it's really funny. My buddy Dan goes, "We're talk-. so we start talking to these people, and they're like, yeah, we're retired, and we come down. Our kids are in college, and we come down here and live just for the, 
you know, summer or whatever, winter or whatever, and stay down here. I was like, oh, it's cool. You know, we don't know these people at all. And my manager's asleep. So it's just me and Dan and Jonathan and Ray. It's got to be 11 o'clock at night. And so he's talking talking to my buddy Dan, starts talking to this guy. And he's like, yeah. He's like, I'd I'd love to, you know, get some some grass or whatever. You know, this guy said something about grass, but not he wasn't talking about weed. Mm. And then my buddy Dan was like, yeah, I'd love to get some grass or whatever, you know, and He's like, well, I got some back at the house. Why don't y'all come over to the house? And and we were like, uh, that seems kind of <laughs> sketch, right? And I'm like, damn, we're going, dude. We're going. And he was like, dude, this is a lot of pressure, dude. He's like, Cappy's in there, dude. Like, we're about to walk off in this fucking town, dude, in the middle of Mexico. Like, sand streets, dude. Like, I don't know where I don't know these people. I don't know where we're at. So we go down there. We walk down the road. We go in there, dude, and it's like just this kind of old, like cool ass biker guy and his wife, dude, and just rolls this one up, dude. And we rip with these folks, and we're walking with him and talking, and he's like, "Yeah, you guys like country music?" You know, my buddy Dan says that, and he's like, "Yeah, but I don't like any of them, them new guys. You know, they're all sissies or whatever kind of thing, you know." And my buddy Dan's like, "Yeah, there's a couple guys that are pretty good though, and stuff, and." So we get in there, hang out with them. We tell them we're riding ATVs the next day, and they're like, well, we'll show you guys around. We start ripping tequila shots. It's just me and my buddy Dan and these, like, 60-year-old folks hanging out. And it comes to this point where my buddy Dan goes, he goes, dude, I got to tell him, man. And I was like, what do you mean? It's like, tell him what? What do you got to tell him? He's like, I got to tell him, dude, because, like, I know their grandkids are probably, like, like you, dude. Like, their grandkids probably think you're cool, dude, and they're not going to know. <laughs> and he's like, imagine. He goes, dude. He's like, get it together. Oh, dude, we're like, we're zoinked, dude. We're taking tequila shots, like smoking J's with these old folks. And he's like, dude, imagine if these people were in their 20s and they were hanging out with George Strait, dude, and it was their grandparents hanging out with George Strait, and they didn't know that it was George Strait or whatever. And I was like, dude, I'm not George Strait, though, dude. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and he goes, man, this guy's name's Luke and everything. And, and they're like, oh, cool you know and like we took a picture with them and the guy like rolled us a j for the next day and like we take off out and we're like okay we okay mission like get back to this house right we get out in the street there's no street lights dude there's one light on this one house and it's just kind of illuminating this road this like sand clay kind of road in front of us and we walk out and i just hear this like cling 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 it's like a bell and all of a sudden, dude, these two huge steers, dude, walk out like bulls, dude, walk down this road. And, like, I'm staring down the barrel, dude, of these two massive bulls, dude, on the beach in Mexico with Dan. We're baked. We've been hanging out with these old people, dude. We're halfway lost trying to get back to this house. And we like hot, we're, like, hiding behind this dumpster. And I'm like is this real? Like, where are we, dude? What is this place? And we get back, we get back to the house, the bulls pass, we make it back, and it's got to be two or three in the morning at this point. Get back, and we open the slide. We're trying to sneak in. Everybody's in bed, dude. And I'm like, I felt like I was sneaking out of my parents' house or something again, but I was like 24 or five years old. Open the door. My manager, unbeknownst to us, is sleeping on the couch outside. And when we click the door open, he's like, oh, God. He he gets up. Like, we're freaked out. And I was like, dude, get up. I was like, I know there's leftover shrimp in there, dude. Make us a stir fry. He was like, 
what are you talking about? It's like, dude, we've been hanging out with these old people. We almost got killed by these bulls. And to his credit, dude, he got up and whipped us up like this breakfast stir fry at like three something in the morning, dude. And like that was my Mexico experience. So it's not, it was a great time. That's a rural Mexico experience. Yeah. It yeah. was awesome, dude. It was, you know who it was lives amazing. in Mexico? Jesse Ventura. Really? Yeah. When he stopped being governor of Minnesota, he got a compound in Mexico. Why? Why do you- well, you know, he was doing that conspiracy theory show. I'm going to get some of this. And I think he got cool. balls deep into this idea that uh, America is so profoundly corrupt and dangerous. And, you know, he didn't want to have any part of it anymore. He wanted to get the fuck out of America. And he bought a compound in Mexico. Dude, that's wild, man. Yeah. How old is he now? He's got to be He's like pretty old. Is he eighties or seventies? Late seventies. It's a good question. I had him on the podcast a few years back, and you know he's got like a little bit of a shake to him now. You know, right. He's got s- some health issues. Mm-hmm. How old is he now? Seventy-one years old. Seventy-one. Minnesota. Wow. Jesse Ventura from Minnesota. So he was a wrestler. Yeah. Wild man. Yeah, he was a wrestler, and then became the governor of Minnesota as an independent. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Though, dude. That's rare. That's like yeah. a rare thing to happen. He was gonna run for president. Yeah, predator. Yeah. He's oh, a predator. predator. Right. That's right. 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 <laughs> I'm about to be like this Bunch too. of schlock drunk. <laughs> Remember that? He was amazing. Yeah, that was a great fucking movie, man. That was fun. Did you see the new one? I haven't seen the new one. The new one's awesome. Is they, it? They, yeah, they did a new one about the Comanches. So oh, the, that's cool. the new one is uh, like a prequel. Oh, it's like the, the Predators have been coming to yes, for a long forever. time, right? Yeah. Okay, that's cool. Yeah, I would and they like come to see that. and they make war with the Comanche. It's fucking awesome. Is it? You liked it? Fuck. Yeah, I love I'll have to check movies. it out. I love it. Anything involving aliens and Native Americans? Oh man. Dude, I feel like those gung ho like like late eighties like early nineties action movies were like. The sickest, dude. I remember Commando. I've seen that movie <laughs> 8,000 times, dude. Like, yeah. it's just, that was just a different level, dude. Schwarzenegger was just killing it, dude. Oh, he had so many of those movies, too. So many of those gung-ho, kind of corny action movies. But they were sick, though, dude. They were sick, dude. <laughs> they were. Like, I mean, how many guys, look, look at him, dude. He was look so at this guy. jacked. <laughs> I'd like to look like 10% of that guy, dude. would be awesome, you know? It's interesting seeing guys like that as they get older. It's just like you realize, like, we don't have much time. You really don't because when I was in high school, this guy was a stud. Yeah. And now he's this older dude. Is this the trailer? <laughs> I love the chainmail vest the bad guy in this movie wears, dude. All those movies back then, the Chuck Norris movies. The rocket and Launcher, dude, was so hard, dude, when he pulled the rocket launcher out. <laughs> Commando. <laughs> Look at that guy, dude. This guy. He had the chainmail vest, dude. Yeah, those movies were so good. Kindergarten Cop. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this movie's legendary. Me and my dad. Is that Radon Chong? I don't know. Who was in that with him? Alyssa Milano's in it, his young daughter. <laughs> yeah, it's Radon Chong. That's Tommy Chong's daughter. Wild. How about uh, another one? Big Trouble in Little China, dude. Oh, yeah. Love man. that flick, dude. That's a classic. I love, me and my dad watch that all the time. That's dude. a classic. Yeah, that was a yeah. classic one, man. Yeah, it's uh, it's funny when you try to go back and watch those things now. 
Is it a qualifier for being old that like everything or feeling old where you're like, man, stuff was better back then? That's just a qualifier, right? Yeah. Of like everybody thinks that way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I listen to my kids' music now. I'm like, what the fuck are you listening to? This is nonsense. Right. You know. But Which essentially, my 12 year old is really into like old shit. She's into Kiss and Nirvana and all all kinds. Like she yeah. she plays me music, and I'm like, how the fuck do you know this? Like she's into she's into like really my my 14 year old is into like contemporary shit. Like right. whatever's popular now, she's mm-hmm. into that. Right. She's into a lot of rap. And my 12-year-old is into, like, really cool old music. What are you into, music-wise? Like, what would be... Okay, you got five, dude. Five. Okay, you only listen to five artists forever. Mm, my God. And it's not... So it's technically not a favorite five list. Yeah, because I, I, I always take into account in this question, like, the scope of the catalog, right? Yes. So, like, if I can really only listen to five artists forever... Mm-hmm. Like, I don't want to listen to someone with two albums that I really like. Right. Like, I got to have somebody that's got enough of a catalog to, like, keep me going through uh, that. Well, I'm a know? giant Hendrix fan. Okay. Which is why uh, I named the podcast The Joe Rogan Experience. Okay. So, Hendrix would have to be on the list. Because it's just something about... Hendrix, to me, has always been, like, a magical figure. There's something about him that just embodied the spirit of the rebelliousness of the 1960s. This shift... Yeah. From the fifties to the sixties, and yeah. the uh, ex army guy. I mean, yeah. he was like that was the whole. He was like a micro cause, like a you know, he was like a synopsis of the whole era. Yeah, like, like embodied in like a human being. Also, you know? unparalleled genius on the guitar. Like oh. no one had ever seen anything like that before. Yeah, without a doubt. Like Eric Clapton famously talked about the first time he saw Jimi Hendrix play, and he just wanted to throw his guitar into the fire. Like what the right. fuck am like, I doing? What am I gonna do? Right? Yeah, Jesus Christ. Um, you know, I used to do uh, news radio, the sitcom with Phil Hartman. And when Phil Hartman was young, he worked as like um, like a roadie. And, you know, he worked for, I think it was the whiskey. Pretty sure it was the whiskey. And so he was there, I believe he was 18, when Hendrix was playing. And his job was to make sure that the speakers didn't fall into the audience, like the way it was set up. Jeez. So he had a stand there like right by the stage why Hendrix was right there playing in front of him. That's wild. And he said it was the most fucking surreal experience of his life, just seeing oh, Hendrix wail at yeah. the whiskey on sunset. Just and he's And he's a kid, right. just like standing there, like just with his hands on the speaker, making sure it doesn't fall over. That's just, it's just hard to even fathom yeah. that. It's know? hard to fathom, yeah. So Hendrix? Hendrix for sure. Oh my God! It's tough. It's a it's, tough question. It's you. You only have five. It's hard. Yeah. I'm, I'm a giant fan of classic rock. You know, like I really love Zeppelin and yep. Pink Floyd. And mm-hmm. there's something about there's something about the music for me that is of that era of the 1960s. Like I'm obsessed with 1960s cars. I yeah. have a bunch of 60s muscle cars. Mm-hmm. This is, they're my favorite. I just sometimes yeah. I go in my garage and just stare at them. I just yeah. sit there for like an hour and, and just stare like, at them. Man, these are sick. I'll right. just pull up a folding chair and just stare at the car. Yep. There's just something about those things. I mean, that's when I was born. I was born in 67, and I feel like there's something about that, about going to high school, like when those cars had, you know, like you could kind of acquire right. those cars when you're 18. And it was, you know, because they weren't really that valuable back then, oddly enough. Right. They you were know? just kind of like the cars people had. Yeah, right? you could get yeah. like a, a 1968 Olds for like... Two, two grand, like a yeah. really mint one. 
That's wild. Yeah, and it was just, there's something about that era that, to me, symbolizes the shift in American culture. The American culture that shifted from the, the, you know, the music and the culture of the 1950s to the 1960s, the Vietnam War, and the, just the change of the society, of the, the zeitgeist shifted, and right. the drugs, and the rebelliousness, and the hippie movement, and the anti-war movement, and just the rock and roll was undeniable, you know? Yeah, definitely. The doors it, and yeah, it had that. It had it had balls behind it, man. Mm-hmm. It was like and it, it was like the music was made. You know, it wasn't this commercialized thing, right? At like all. it wasn't like no. no one was thinking about it in that sense at that time. And maybe I'm insane for thinking that, but it it just it feels like that. Someone who wasn't even born then who goes mm. back and listens to that music, it has this like grit to it that just doesn't. Well, just much. go from Buddy Holly to Jimi Hendrix. Just right. do that. That's not that right. much time. Mm-hmm. You know, you're wow. talking about like the difference between like 2013 and today. The yeah. difference between 2013 music wise and today is not that much of a difference. No, it's not. It's just music. But in country that, music, it is. Is it? It is. Yeah. I mean, think about. Hey, yeah. I got to piss. Let's yeah. come back yeah, and we'll absolutely. talk about the difference. I can imagine it gets wild. Dude, I get, I get I'll get twisted, dude, on it. I get I get bit? I get mega anxiety guy, dude. Do you? Yeah, okay. I get like. Here's my thing, man. I used to love it, dude. And when I when it's good, it can't be beat, right? Right. But I feel like as I got so like it starts out right, like you're in college, it's like okay, ten out of ten times I'm loving this. Yeah. Right. And then the years kind of went on, and it was like, okay, like one out of every ten times, it's not great for me. <laughs> and then like the years went on, and it was like three times out of ten. And now it's kind of this point where it's like nine times out of ten, dude. I'm like thinking I'm dying, I'm having a <laughs> panic attack, dude. And it's like I just, dude, it. And I hate that because it is like the, in my opinion, one of the best things in the world. Yeah. But like for me, it's like. It's somehow like my brain has changed where it like doesn't. Well, you have responsibilities now. Yeah, but it's like I even that. I guess I don't even think it's that. It's like it's almost like it's a chemical thing mm. for me, and like I hate that so much because I I did enjoy it so much, and it was like it was such a great thing for me. Like when like creatively or yeah. like it just to relax, dude, or like have a great time with my buddies, dude, and it's like. I hate that I can't enjoy it anymore and Luke, because I see other people enjoy it. You just got to power through. I know, but it's like it's it gets to this point Luke. where like – Be the, around the right people The good outweighs through. the bad, dude. No, Even no, if no, I'm no, with no. the right people, though, it's like it becomes like this thing where it's like I suffer from like really bad, like really, really, really bad OCD, like horrible. Like, like in what way? Okay, so it's like this weird almost like not even like – necessarily probably considered like a legit it's like a i would guess newer would be considered form and newer in medical terms because like the 80s is when like the first people were kind of exploring this type it would be called like purely obsessional ocd which is like okay so you think when i say ocd what do you think of washing your hands too many times touching mm-hmm. things before you leave, like you have to touch mm-hmm. things three times or like straightening this yeah. or like, straightening like howard stern style ocd right like, like you're like everything's that. gonna be like this yeah. or straight or like yeah. everything's gonna be right 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 so my thing is, is pure ocd is right where there's these unanswered questions in your mind that can never be answered and the ritual is trying to find an answer 
Like what kind of questions? Okay, so it could be like, let's say you are super religious, mm-hmm. right? And you love, like at your core, like your belief in God and, and Jesus and your, or any religion, really, right. is the centered part of your life, right? right? So one theme of it can be you have a thought. Everybody has crazy thoughts that slip through their head every day, and they come and go. It's like somebody walking by you on the street, right? They walk by and they go, oh, that was weird. I just had a thought about jumping into traffic. I don't want to. I don't even, that thought doesn't even affect me in any way. It just comes and goes. It's like a weird thought that's mm-hmm. a symptom of my brain. Right. People like me become obsessed with the meaning of those thoughts and why they entered our brain when really they don't mean anything. So like someone that really loves God and that's a core part of their being is they would go, well, what if I hate God? And that thought just, it's just a, mm. it comes and it's gone as far as it can. That thought in your brain triggers a flight or fight response. So you get this mega adrenaline dump <coughs> panic attack moment. So then that gives it validity to your brain. It says, this is something we need to be concerned about. Yeah. So it starts sending that thought more and more and more. <coughs> and the obsession becomes, why did I have that thought? What does it mean? Do I really hate this thing? And it essentially attacks the things that are essentially the antithesis of the antithesis of who you actually are, right? So a lot of people have like uh, like violent obsessions, where they they would have a thought of like stabbing somebody. They don't want to stab anybody, right? Really, at the core of their being, they're probably the most gentle soul in the world. Which is why the thought causes them anxiety. And so then they become obsessed. Like they get on their phone and they're like, why did I have this? Like, what are the symptoms of being a psychopath? Or why am I like this? Or what did I do this? Like, mm. And so these themes, when you have them, they shift over time. But that period could be three, four, five, six months at a time. And then you have another thought that's different, a different theme. And it just switches like that. And then you think back on the other one and you're like, that was so dumb. I can't believe I worried about that. Now I'm worried about what if I'm schizophrenic and I don't know. Wow. And you're obsessed with this thing. And, and I've, I, all my buddies know this about me. And I'm not afraid to talk about it or anything. But it's like I, people ask me sometimes, like my buddies would ask me, especially in high school is when it really kind of started for me. And I think they would go, well, you know, try to explain it to me. And the only way I could explain to you how truly bad it is, right, is if, like, if someone, like, murdered my whole family, I would rather them be free and live with what I had than go to jail. That's how bad it is. Whoa. And that's, like, it's not an exaggeration in any way, shape, or form. I wouldn't wish it on anybody in the entire world. So it just comes in waves and you can't control it. Yeah, pretty much. I had a friend who was, uh, he had that, and uh, he would get these thoughts that he couldn't stop, and he didn't know why, and he would have panic attacks. And uh, he's a comic, and he was uh, doing warm-up for the Cosby show. Mm-hmm. You know, warm-up is you're kind of like telling kind of mild jokes, and you're explaining right. the scene, and you're just right. keeping everybody engaged because the process of filming a television show is pretty it's pretty arduous. Yeah, yep. there's a lot going on, mm-hmm. you know, and sometimes there's downtime. And during that downtime, he would, you know, do kind of stand up for the crowd and work. Right. And he gets this thought in his head that says, don't say the N word. That would be exactly the same thing. Like, so that he, would be exactly the same. He gets this thought and it's paralyzing. 
He's mm-hmm. terrified he's going to say it. Right. And he can't talk. Right. So his, his mouth is quivering. Mm-hmm. He's trying to tell his jokes, but he's not thinking at all about mm-hmm. what he's saying. So now he's bombing. Mm-hmm. So he's bombing. Yep. And the entire time, his mind is screaming at him. You're going to say it. You're going to mm-hmm. say it. Don't Correct. say it. Don't Correct. say it. Yeah. And he that, just has a yeah. fucking full-on panic attack while yes. he's doing. So that would be that would be like a I've never had that particular theme like there is a theme of that like people who like your brains like you're about to say this thing don't say it. Right. And then you're like why would I think that? I don't want to say that or I don't think that way or I'm that's not who I am. And like that makes your brain send it more. So it's right? like a broken circuit. It's a broken circuit for sure and you like being afraid of it is what perpetuates it. Mm. So like the only answer to it is living with the uncertainty. Like let's say I'm your friend in that moment. The only way you can talk yourself out of it is you go, you know what? I might say it. Really? Mm-hmm. That's how you talk yourself out? Like I, sure. might, I might jump you know in what? front of this truck? Like For sure. I'd be like, you know what? I could jump in that front of that truck if I want to. And that's how you And get I'm out okay of it? with it. I'm okay with that. Wow. I'm not going to, but if I wanted to, I could, and I might, and that's okay. And like, but you, like, I can't even explain to people. It's like, because it's so weird to imagine, like, having, a, like, if you had a thought of, like, I'm going to reach across this table and just deck you one, and I don't want to, and I'm afraid of that. But if I go, you know what? I could, and I have to be okay with that. Wow. Like, it's almost like a paradox, right? You're almost tricking the disorder. Because then if you don't care about it anymore, then your brain stops sending the thoughts because the thoughts are what's distressing. Yeah. Right. The, I, like the, the thoughts coming in continually are what stresses you out because the more you have them, you're thinking, well, that must be who I am. Wow. I must be this violent criminal or I must be this Suicidal. or I must be that or yeah. whatever. Whatever like, it is. I must not love my wife or it's all these things that can never be answered. Right. It's not like what's two plus two. Well, we all know that's four. These are all questions that really can, there is no answer to them at all. And marijuana triggers those? No, not no. not really. I just think I, I just think that like it can't be something that's like no. And that's the thing is I'm not afraid of those thoughts at all. Like they don't bother me because at all. you become comfortable with the yeah, idea. Yeah, like it. It, and it took me a decade to to get. Did you get counseling? Did you t- talk to I, people? A few times, not routinely, you know, but I think counseling is almost paradoxical, right? Because the more you focus on it. Oh, boy. So it can become a weird slope because reassurance seeking from other people. Like if I told my best friend, dude, I just had this thought about shooting this guy. Like, tell me I don't want to shoot this guy. <sighs> and then he goes, dude, you're not going to shoot that guy. And I go, oh, God, thank God. Then that you get addicted to the reassurance seeking, which then makes the thoughts come more and more and more and more and more because you're giving them attention. Mm. You're giving them attention. You're giving them attention. And it's so strange, dude. And it's like I know, dude, that there's so many people that struggle with it and no one would ever know. I could be having them right now and you'd have no clue. Wow. I could be totally checked out of this conversation and it's almost like you're living two lives at the same time. (sighs) It's freaky, dude. And it's like – I wouldn't wish it on anybody, dude. I, I wouldn't. And it's terrible. How often does it happen? Mm, now? Yeah. Almost never. Oh. But back then, I mean, I would attribute it to part. I mean, ma- the majority I would attribute it to, like, me failing out of college, probably. 
Like it's right, like, like don't thinking even, you're going to be like, a loser. I don't even want, no, 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 no. Like do you, you don't even want to go out of the house because you're on the bus to school and you're thinking about killing people. Oh, so that's shit. why you dropped out of college. I mean, thoughts. it attributed to my horrible grades without a doubt because it was like, it was all like, I remember the new, the new Scream movie had come out like when I was like 21. This is around the time I started playing guitar. And I was at my obsessions at that time were like violent obsessions. And I would like the Scream commercial would come on like to promote the movie and I would turn it off because I didn't even want to see like anything. Like I wouldn't even play like violent video games. Wow. Which is the wrong way. That's the wrong thing because then avoidance and reassurance seeking are what make the thoughts more prevalent. It's such a paradoxical thing. It's so strange, man. Does anything help it? Like if you go for a hike or if you, you know. It would, yeah. I mean, the more you can go out and not just, the more you hide from it. But do you get paralyzed by it sometimes? Yeah, for feel sure. Like you can't go and do no, anything? No, for sure. And But then it's the thing. It's like that you have to now. Like if, if I were to have it now, you just have to continue on. And I just know now that if I have it, like it will end. Do you, have you ever got it when you're on stage? Yeah, for sure. Oh, yeah. Wow. No doubt. And it's like you feel so trapped, man. You want to talk about feeling trapped. I mean, you're in an arena with 20,000 people in there, and you're, like, having a full-blown, like, and you're singing the song. Oh, my God. And it's like nobody would even know that. Wow. You know, but, like, that's, uh, yeah, that's a lonely feeling, dude. You know what I mean? But it's, I, you know, I, 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 if anything, I want to, you know, I know that there's kids that are at home, like, d- dealing with this right now. And, yeah. like, I didn't even know what it was till I was probably 19 or 20 years old. And I'd had it since I was probably 12. And Jeez. so you're just afraid, dude. You just don't, you can't explain it to your parents. They don't know what to do. They're like, well, I don't know what to do. Like, it's just I can't imagine some kid at home going through this right now, going through that right now, and like, it's just so sad, dude, to me to know that there's people that deal with it, and it's like that. It's such a it's and it's kind of obscure, right? So it's not like this. It's not depression, right? It's not like the hyped up like oh I have, you know I have depression or anxiety or whatever. It's like I always wonder. With people that have things like that, that are also great artists, I always wonder. They run hand in hand. There's no something doubt. No about doubt. yeah that like contributes to the depth of your art. I, I think it's creativity, right? So creativity can be a really great thing and a really bad thing, in my opinion, because I think the creative side of my brain that can create a song and a story from nothing, right? Like I could write a song about this you know bronze skull you have here if i really had to yeah and i could create a story that was at least mildly compelling about it but i can also do that with the thought of stabbing somebody that i don't want to have right and my brain just runs with it it's the same circuit right like my brain runs with that creativeness and that can be a really detrimental thing to your mental health too you know did they ever try to give you medication for this in high school, yeah. What they give you? Um, it would probably be now like, I, don't know, I guess like maybe Z- like Zoloft, maybe. I'm not sure what the generic of that would be. Mm-hmm. So it's a SSRI. Yeah, it's an SSRI of some sort, um, and that that it just didn't hit it for me, you know. 
And may, that probably does work for a lot of people. It just never hit it for me. Did I, it stop the thoughts? No. Uh, that's the thing I don't know. Like, I wasn't on it long enough. You know, I was on it for a month, and, and really, then, in the terms of SSRIs, that's not even long enough for them to take effect, right? Like, really, you have to take them for, what, two or three months, I think, for them to be fully going, right? So there is some sort of, like, serotonin, dopamine imbalance thing going on associated with it. And I just choose to not go that route, but I think if that route works for people, then they should do that. But that just wasn't something that I was interested in because I feel like it would have numbed, like... The creative aspect, the positive. Or, yeah, or like anything that was left of like my positive life at that point. Yeah, I've heard people talk about Zoloft specifically in that regard, where they just like it numbs them or nothing bothers them, but nothing yeah. excites them either. They just yep. flat. It's just kind of yeah. And I, I wouldn't want to do that, and you know, fuck that. And yeah. I think I think in some ways, I mean, it's some probably sound nuts to say this, but I think in some ways, my my brain is kind of like that, anyways now and i think that may be an effect of of the disorder that i've had mm. like no, nothing really gets me through the roof excited really? or down in the through the roofs like in the dumps either and so, i think so you've like managed your mind to keep it in like a certain frequency i think and and, and i feel like it's a subconscious like almost defense mechanism of mm. like having gone through like just these different things of that and that's bothered me a lot over the course of my career too because i sometimes i feel really guilty about not feeling the way i feel like i should feel about certain things like in what way like if i win a big award or if i get a number one song or like those things are incredible and that's what i want to be doing like that's why i started doing this but like i don't get that serotonin like dopamine hit off those things like i feel like do you get that i watch my colleagues do and i wonder when I watch it, like I watch someone win an award like Male Vocalist of the Year or at the CMAs or whatever and go up and accept the award and they're like almost in tears. Like I don't feel that way and that makes me feel really like guilty and like that something's like wrong with me. You know, as does that make sense what I'm saying? You know, like like I, I think you watch movies your whole life and you feel like this is the way that people are supposed to feel about things. And like, like sometimes I've, and like, I appreciate the scope of what's going on and what it means to me and my team. And like, I'm so like insanely proud of all those accomplishments, like insanely, like, this is why I like do this It's like to have achieved all of these great things. But in that moment, like, it's not this like overflow of like joy and like tears and like there's a few times in my life I felt that. It's when I got married to my wife. It's when my son was born. That's it, dude. Like, and that's, I and, and like I felt no, and, and like I feel like I miss out on a lot because of this disorder, like because of the way my brain mm. works or the the way that it's defended itself or something and there's probably a bunch of science that says I'm dumb or that I'm just like an emotionless weirdo but like I like I feel like I've been robbed of that of all these things like and maybe they all just seem trivial because of all the shit that I dealt with for so long with it like the battles I fought inside my own head mm. 
I don't know. It's hard to really explain. Like, It's hard to explain because the only way I would know is if I could somehow or another be in your brain. It's right. so like I'm trying to imagine right. that. I can imagine it, mm-hmm. but I can't imagine living with it like you've lived with it and mm-hmm. what you've the steps you've taken to sort of get your place, your mind into this place. Yeah, like I just... I'm just, it's like, I'm so thankful, dude, to just not be living in that mindset. Do you have those positive thoughts when you create a new song? When you have yeah, a new- Yeah, yeah, but it's, I love writing songs, man. I love it. But maybe, I mean, I don't get those feelings either for big things. It's very odd. Like okay, I, that makes me feel better, for yeah, sure. Yeah, like, I, it's very odd. Does that ever bother you in the sense of like, do you, do you watch people go up? Like, let's say there's, I'm not super familiar with the like comedic world. Like, is there an award (laughs) thing? Like, it doesn't seem like it. Right. But like, let's say there was, right. Let's in a, let's do like in the next reality Uh over, right. Like, let's say there's the the Oscars for comedy, comedy Oscars, right. Right. (laughs) And you go up and it's like funniest son of a bitch in the world award and that's mm-hmm. the biggest thing in comedy dude you know what i mean like all your heroes won it yeah i wouldn't be excited about that right but no. but imagine being in the crowd let's say you won it that let's say you won it right and let's say you won it last year yeah and you're like man it just didn't feel like it was supposed to and you're like i i love that i won that because i worked really hard and i want that's something i want to achieve mm-hmm. in your brain you know that yeah. And you appreciate the shit of it. You have it in your house. It's awesome. You're p- really proud of it. And then the next year, somebody else wins it. And they get up, dude, and they're pouring d- the tears, dude. And they're, like, having this big, like, emotional outburst about winning this thing and how much it means to them. Mm-hmm. And then you're going, why didn't I do that? Why, d- why didn't I feel that... Like rush, like was I robbed of that rush of emotion? Like I often wonder that about myself. Mm. Like when I see my colleagues win things that I've even won and they can barely even talk to get through the tears and I'm up there like, hey man, this is so great. Like I love my wife and my team and like everything's great. Thank you. Is that just mean I'm a different guy? Yeah, you're just a different guy. I don't but that's the things I wonder, dude, about about that kind of stuff. Yeah, I don't um I don't get excited about things like that. I don't get excited about winning things. I don't get excited about that kind of stuff. Like a great show, like even like a sellout Madison Square Garden standing ovation. I'm like, that's great. Right. But I'm not think. I don't think about it like like these emotional big moments. My focus is always on the thing I'm doing, and that's what's important. And it worked. It's supposed to work. You worked hard to make it work. Then you did it. Good. Get back to work. That's my mind. My mind is like, don't, right. don't get right. all fucking excited about the fact that this yeah. was great. Right. Don't get stupid. Go right back to work. So my mind is always, no matter what happens, whatever accomplishments, my mind is always focused only on the work. And we're only very on, similar then, man. Yeah. That's, then that's. But I think it's a creative thing. I think so too. Because man. what I get excited about, like I have this new bit that I wrote yesterday, mm-hmm. and I did it last night, and it killed. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> I, got like, yeah, I, got I got something. I got something. I got like a seed. So right. for me, like uh, bits are seeds, and those seeds are like a divine gift of mm-hmm. the universe. Right. Like whatever it is that creates 
creativity, whatever it is that creates an idea that, that enters into your mind and now you can give life to, and then you become obsessed with it. That's what I get excited about. I get excited about these moments, and I get excited about when they work. I get excited about making, but I ne- it's never excited for me. It's never, I'm True. never like, I feel that. Man. I'm the man, I did it. I just, never. I feel that. I never feel that. Yeah. And I feel like that because that's wasted energy. And I th- feel like that kind of celebrating is like, come on, man, you know what the fuck you're doing. You've been doing this forever. Like, you, you, this is what you do. Like, you, yeah, it's a great show. That's fun. It's nice to have a great show, yep, but that's sure. not what's important. What's important right. is the thing. There's fucking untold how many people, million people that are into what you're doing. Like, you, what you got to do is get back to work. Right. Like, I have a massive responsibility con- yeah. to continue to create and to do the yeah. best I can, whether it's with podcasting or whether it's with uh, doing stand-up or whether it's doing UFC commentary. I have, like, this massive responsibility to just, just do the best I can. So yeah. that's all I think about is, like, the thing that I can right. control. You become and, obsessed with the result as in 100%. the sense of, like— the process and the result, right? And, yeah. and, and I, I'm the same way, dude. Like I, I, I just okay. So let me ask you this: I'm, I'm interested. So you're obsessed with the result, right? So you go up, you do your bit last night, and it fucking crushes, dude. It slams. You love it, right? Everybody loves it, and you're like, I got something. Yeah. Are you in? So after that ends. And you're sitting in the green room and let's say, or you finally get home and you're by yourself. What is the thing that, that keeps you shoving the, shoving the needle in your arm, dude? Like it's what, just, it's, is it the reaction and knowing that I've done it? I, d- I did it again. I did the joke. I got the joke that's the joke. Dude. No, it's not. It's almost not me. Right. It's the thing. It's like, I know that I'm the person who's in front of the keyboard who came up with these ideas mm-hmm. and who write it down, wrote, wrote it on my phone. Right. And I'm the dude who's pacing around the green room trying to figure out which way to set it up. And should I chop this part out or let me just get the bullet points and then just talk to these people and t- tell them what I think about this thing. And the right. comedy's going to come out of that. Yeah, It's just that it's never like me. It's always, right. it's always it's about focused it. on the thing. And it's res, but it's the fact that it resonates with someone else. Yes, on on such a grand scale. Well, if it resonates with me, it'll resonate with someone else. For that's sure. that's what I've found. If I, as long as I'm honest about my approach, and as long as I'm like, what the fuck? Like, if I think it's funny, and I start thinking like about right. what's funny about it, right? Then I then the thing is just figuring out a way to get that into people's minds, mm-hmm. the smoothest, cleanest, right. funniest, sneakiest way. Right. You know, and it's yeah. a process. So the process is what's very exciting because the beginning yeah. is usually a little clunky because you're not exactly sure how you're going to say it. Sure. And maybe I said it right last night, but I forgot how to say it right tonight. Yeah. And I fucked it up. And then I have to live with that. Yeah. And then the next day I have to start all over again. And then I go over the notes and I go over the fucking recordings and I try to figure out. But it's always the thing. It's never, yeah. it's never like, look what I did. I fucking did it. I'm crying. Right. Zero. <laughs> right. I get zero right. of that. Yeah. Like even when I film specials, even if I film a Netflix special and it fucking kills, I'm like, okay, we did it. And then when I put I'm it out, way, I dude. stay offline. I don't read reviews. Yep. I'm like, I just got to keep moving. Yeah. I'm keep concentrating way, on this thing that I'm doing. Yeah. That makes, that makes me feel great. Cause I, I, I feel, 
I feel that same way, man. But there's uh, nothing wrong with freaking out, too. There's nothing wrong with no, going no. up there and crying, and no. this is an amazing moment for you, and you've worked so hard for that. I just think every individual creative person has a unique way of addressing ideas and the thing that you're in love with. And with you, the thing you're in love with is music. And you address that music, and clearly it's working. Like Your process creates amazing songs. So there's something about this way you think where you don't get excited about things that keeps you in that moment. And I think you're thinking about it as a negative, but I think it's a superpower. I really do. And I think it's one of the reasons why your songs are so good. I think it's a part of your mind. And it's, it's just like you have this unique gift of your mind. It's a unique mind. There's no one else like you. You are you. And that, that's, that's what's coming out. And that's why, that's why like the, the award shows are bullshit. All these people clapping on cue and like, why right. would I get excited about it? It's the same thing has already happened. Right. The music is affected. When people are listening to one of your songs in their car and they start crying, that's what's up. That's the award, that's right? The, that's the fucking award, man. And you're right. not going to be there for no that. Doubt. No doubt. You're not even going to be there for that. Yeah. The beauty of it is when you are there for that is, is at a show, right? Yeah. Like if you get that one person out of 60,000 or whatever now that we're doing these stadiums is like that makes it to the front row yeah and they want to hear this one song because it means so much to them and you play it and you see them dude I've had many 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 nights where it's like I have one song in particular that's called even though I'm leaving and it's a song um, that essentially starts out with like a dad talking to his son saying like Oh man, like you're scared of the, I know there's not any monsters under the bed kind of thing. And like, I'm just down the hall, you know, even though I'm leaving, I'm not going nowhere. Right. And next verse is, then it's the son and he's going off to war. Right. And the, the hook changes to, you know, even though you're leaving, I'm not going nowhere. You know, I'll be here when you get back kind of thing. And then the last verse is the dad passing away. And it's like, Hey man, like even though I'm leaving, I'm not going anywhere, you know. And like, there's been many nights where like you see that person that's connected with that, like that's lost their dad, right? And they're there, and you're they're right in your face, man. And they're just like, there's three or four people on them, wow. just you know, and they're just weeping, dude. I'm mean, uncontrollably, and it's like, it's powerful, dude. I mean, that stuff is like. There, I mean, that's powerful stuff, man. And that's that's the, right. that's, that's the reason that's you it. do it. Dude. That's it. That's why you do it. That's why you right? don't get excited about yeah. awards, man. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with you. Because there's nothing that's yeah. like, there's nothing that speaks to, to me like that does. But man. that's also why that. it's so good, man. That's why it's so good. The reason why you have this thought process behind it is, is like the end result. Yeah. It's just, you want to make people feel something, dude. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. you're, like... You want to make them yeah. feel this, like yeah, whether it's a cathartic thing or it's like, you know, like even songs that maybe are mega sad. It's like there's something cathartic about ba- like basking in sadness. Yeah, I think too sometimes mm-hmm. like very tra- something very attractive. Right, people. like like people. It's like sometimes you hear like, well, you know, you know, pull yourself out of it kind of thing. But like I think there's an that's an important part of the some sort of process of life is if you get your heart broken or yes. a loved one passes away like that. Yeah. It's inherent what... sadness is like part of the process. Right. And it's like, that's such a powerful, like human emotion mm. to me. 
Like it, it's to just, everyone. Yeah. Yeah, to all the people who feel. Yeah, it's uh, that's why people love those sad songs. I mean, it's not that they want to be sad. They don't want right. to listen to some. Oh, I'm too happy today. Let me listen to Luke Combs and get right. start crying. Right. <laughs> but it's like they yeah. want to hear this. Put this song on. That, so it's almost like reaffirming this feeling. Of it, it just it resonates or, with human emotion yep. and feeling and thought and the appreciation of people when they are there. You know, that's part of the sorrow is the the backside of it is the appreciation of the people that are in your life that you love. Yeah. It's like you, you don't feel one without the other. It's like the two of them, they, they go hand in hand. They're the yin and the yang of the world. You know, I don't think there's anything wrong with your thought process in regards to that at all. I really don't. I don't think you're robbing yourself of anything. I don't. I think you're you're getting the juice out of the right spots. That's, that's what good. I, that's that makes what me I feel think. good, man, because I... I worry about that. I, I, you know, I think about that a lot, and that's not, you know, that's not something I've brought up to, to a lot of folks really, almost ever, you know. But I often I wonder that a lot. You know, I spend a lot of time worrying about that. The more crazy things happen to me, the more they're like steady, like a normal thing. It's a base level. Yeah, it's like right. everything stays normal. But it's not that. Then it's like I worry. So it's like, well, it's not. I don't want this to be expected either. It's not expected. It's just you're like. You're comfortable with it, right? Yeah. You're just like, all right, yeah. this is what I'm doing. Like, this yeah. is the kind of level of stuff I'm doing. Like, talking about planning a stadium tour is like a normal thing. Yeah, it's now. normal. Right. But it's it just, is normal. Yeah. It's normal for you. Yeah. What's normal for you is like mind blowing for 21 year old Luke to imagine yeah. that one day you'd be that guy. Yeah, no doubt. Doing I mean, a fucking stadium tour. Yeah. It's like, ah. It's crazy, man. It's like not even like. Just doesn't even seem like possible, right? Right? Yeah. To well, do. because it's not normally. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's why it's so crazy to you. But that's you have the right approach. Because if you were like, "Yeah, I'm the fucking man. I'm out here doing a fucking right. stadium tour. I'm right. the fucking man." Right. That's like the that's the opposite of your creative process. That's the opposite of the right. the frequency that your mind is on when it's making these things that resonate with people's real feelings. I just try to stay so rooted in, like, humility. Like, that's been such a huge part of, like, I think, like, like how me and my whole team have, like, gotten where we are is, like, like, I just want people to know, like, how, like, grateful I am for all of it, right? It's, like, it's not, like, I am 1% of the, of the puzzle, dude. You know what I mean? Like, I'm the guy that gets to sit in here and talk with you but the 99 percent of everything else that's going on is like work that's done by someone else other than me dude like and i feel like that whole part of the process is like lost in like the idea of like celebrity right mm. it's like me and you are just we're one guy but we're a we're we may be maybe we're a bigger cog in the wheel right but you take that one cog out or any cog out and it doesn't work Yes. Right? It's like there's a team, and I'm sure you have a, a team of folks that yeah. propel your success because there's not enough time in t 10 lives to do all the things that's necessary for your stuff to go on or my stuff to go on. Like, there's so many folks involved in that, mm -hmm. you know? And, like, I'm just, I'm really grateful for, like, having a like, awesome group of people to, like, work with that, like, don't just tell me yes to everything and like that are willing to challenge me on things and like say, Hey man, is this the right decision? Or I don't love this song or like 
why would we do this thing? Or like, mm. why don't we think about this? Like, I've always tried to keep it this open thing of like me and like people that work with me can talk about things and just have discussions that a lot of people, I think, sometimes lose that. They become so shielded in the idea of celebrity, which is like they got a security guy, so nobody on their team, like they might not even know this guy that works for them at all. They don't mm. even know that guy's name, and he's worked for him for five or six years at all. Doesn't even know him, you know? And, like, to me, it's like I can't say we're all best friends, dude. We're not all coming over to my house and having – an oyster roast or something. You know what I mean? But like, I'm friendly with everybody that's out on the road with me. And like, I want people to know that like, I'm approachable, you know, like we can talk about something. Like, I think that's so crucially important to like the overall success of the thing. Because if I show up at a venue, the only impression that 99% of the people working in that venue will get of me is someone that works for me. Right. So mm -hmm. if everyone on my team is rude, then what are they going to think about me? Of course. Right? They're going to go, well, this guy must be a, yeah. a jerk, dude. Cause but this attitude that you have, though, is why, you're, why people love you. I mean, it's why it resonates like this. The, 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 to keep from being captured by celebrity and stardom. Because a lot of people do because it's a shield. You put that shield up to shield you from the, the thoughts of uncertainty and insecurity and whether or not you're worthy and whether or not you right. can keep doing it you know mm -hmm. with a lot of people it's like you start doing it, but can i keep doing it do i still have it like good what are my new songs any good are my new jokes any good it's the same kind of thing right. and it's you're just thinking about it the right way but it's not something that anybody could teach you because nobody gets to be famous it's a small tiny sliver of the population and then to be famous for doing something that resonates with people and like they worship you they fucking listen to your song a hundred times in a row i mean that's that's a thing that no one is going to be able to explain to you because they like you could talk to a psychologist about it and they're dealing with you know theory they don't right. they have never experienced that they don't know what it's like to stand on stage in front of 60,000 people and only you do very few people do and it's up to you because you are the guy that's holding the microphone and playing the music you are the guy that has to navigate that road and you're doing it i think the right way the way you're handling it with humility and the way you're handling it with genuine appreciation and just being a real person you can keep that going guys have kept that going and that's actually something that's rewarded in country music yeah which i think is great yeah. because in some some styles of music it's like rewarded that you become untouchable mm -hmm. you become sure. the, you become this unapproachable untouchable don't make eye contact he's a genius he's going to walk into the room right. and everybody get out of the way and if he picks up the guitar, everybody stop talking, you know, like that, right. that kind of right. psycho thinking like that can, that can pollute your mind no and, doubt. and, and, and people get very no captured by that. And we've yeah. seen it many, 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 many times with rock stars, with movie stars. It's just the, the, the thing that you have given into is so overwhelmingly odd and so few people experience, and it just does not resonate with any normal human emotions. It's so strange mm -hmm. that everybody knows who you are and you don't know who they are, and you right. just, this is the life you live, but it's up to you because you're the rare traveler that's gone down that road that far, the rare one. It's up to you to navigate that road. And if you can do it, a young artist can also see you do it. 
For sure. And they can go, oh, look, well, look how fucking Sturgill Simpson's so cool. Yeah. And he's fucking huge. Like, how do I stay cool? Right. Like, I got that's what I aspire to. I don't aspire right. to being a diva and have everybody right. throw rose petals at my feet. Right. I aspire to be that cool motherfucker that can hang out with the sound guy and is, For is, sure, is, is cracking jokes with the bus driver. No doubt. Someone who's just a normal yeah. person who just, by some strange circumstance, the yes. rarest of rare moments in life, you wind up being that person. Yeah. I just think about, it's like, I, I can't tell you, like, how many beers I shotgunned in college. And, like, now I can shotgun a beer and, like, 50, 60,000 people are, like, stoked about it. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm like, that's awesome, dude. That's like, pretty awesome. I did seven or eight of these a night for yeah, years, dude. Yeah. You know, years. I might do one. I heard we were talking. You went to the bathroom when I was talking about it. That's what got me thinking about yeah, shotgun. shotguns. I might do one. Go ahead. I might bro. do one. We get the cool? fucking the freedom funnels here. I might just do one out straight out of the can. Old I school. might just go you need straight a knife. Can. Yeah, I'll do. I'll start it though this way. Oh, you with teeth? Jesus Christ! Start it. I always start it that way, right? I feel like that's for good effect. You know, I got a, that was a two holer on that one. <laughs> right here. That was two. I got two teeth through that bad boy. Old school. Yeah, it's a, it's an art form, you know what I mean? It's not a speed. This is not a speed thing, right? It's like it is with the funnel, the freedom funnel. It goes right to your brain. Do you think you could freedom funnel faster than I could shotgun one? I wouldn't bet a lot of money on that. I mean, it's possible. I think wow. for sure. There's only one way to find out, sir. That's true. America, fuck yeah! <laughs> Coming to save the motherfucking day, yeah. That should be our national that. anthem. You got to close it because you opened it. Oh, okay. Why? Is that the rule? Yeah, that's like a... <laughs> when someone uh, closes it or opens it, they have to close it? Oh, yeah, dude. That's big rule. Fuck yeah. Ready? <laughs> yeah. Three, two, one. Yeah, you beat me by a solid three seconds. Impressively fast. You beat Thank me you. by a Tesla zero to 60. <laughs> Oh my goodness! Whew. That was good. I don't even know how he did that. It's like college. It feels he just like college. Opened it up and it went down. Yeah. So years of what is the deal with closing a knife? How come you have to? I don't know. I just always heard that. Like if you open it, you gotta be the person that closes it. It's like bad luck, right? Really? I've always heard that at least. There's a problem with those bad luck things. They get in your head, and then you think that's the truth. It's like the guys that do like flip the cigarette around. Like when they open a pack of cigarettes, they flip the first one they touch upside down. You heard of that? To keep from getting cancer? I don't know. I, it's like, but they called a lucky. I don't know why. Right, but you flip it, really? you flip it upside down, and then that's the last one you smoke out of the pack. Oh, I didn't know that. It's another like, w like weird superstition thing. I'm sure there's a bunch of those. I'm there's sure a there's bunch a of rabbit those. hole of like those things that people could go down. Yeah, those things are fucking weird. The things that people just decide and then they have to do it and you get obsessed yeah. with it. You have to wear your lucky watch. You have yeah. to Dude, you know, the, like yeah. you know what has the most of that to do is baseball, dude. It oh has the yeah. Most superstition stuff in it. Like crusty yeah. socks, dude. Like <laughs> grody stuff, dude. You know what I was excited to ask you about when I got in here is I'm a huge UFC guy. Huge, and I just—I don't even know if I have like what questions I would even have. I could do three hours just on that. Like I'm just—I've just been such a fan of it for so long. Like since like back to high school, you know. Like I probably got into it like, obviously, like I'm not OOG, dude. I'm not like Gracie UFC one 
guy. Like I was too young when that right. was going on. But I was like, like Chuck Tito, like mm-hmm. that. Like that yeah. was like when I started, and that was like that. I'm hooked. Like Chuck was the guy for me that got me hooked. Like yeah, I'm like this guy is the guy. Well, and he like, was the guy that launched the UFC, really, because it, for him as the biggest star, for him, because he was such a destroyer, he had just like oh, seek and man. destroy style. Yeah. He was so exciting. When he, Every one of his fights was a fucking chaotic experience. It was, man. I And just like the him and Randy trilogy, dude, the him mm-hmm. and Tito thing, it was like, mm-hmm. those were the, and I remember watching like, like Stefan Bonner, Forrest Griffin, like that was just a, a war bloodbath. Like, mm-hmm. and I just became like obsessed. I was like obsessed with it, dude. Like it's so, it's just so primal, dude. That I lo- I just couldn't love it anymore, man. Like I, I'm just been to a live event. I have not. Oh, you got. I go. want to so bad. Tell me bad. when. Tell me where go. you want to go. We'll hook it up. So bad, dude. Okay, like okay. So here's me out. What? Okay. What's the What's the next title fight that I you think I should see in person? Well, I would say this weekend, but it's in London. Leon Edwards versus Kamaru Usman, the rematch. <sighs> that fight was dun, crazy, dun, dude. Dun, dun. One minute to go. Leon dude. launches the greatest head kick of all time. Dude, it, dude, that he, the way he fainted that punch, dude, to yeah. get him to duck into Ooh. it. Dude, I remember screaming. We were at, I was at. Uh, Look at this fight card, too. Justin Gaethje versus Rafael Faziv. Rafael Faziv is a fucking assassin. That is going to be a wild fight. That is going to be a wild fight. Oh, man, I, I'm just eat up, dude. Yeah. Who's... That fight, Leon Edwards and Kamaru Usman, though, that's that's like, that's for legacy. I mean, Usman is, in my, in my mind, up into that fight, he's the greatest welterweight of all time. And Leon Edwards he's, lands that one head you're kick. Going, you're going over GSP. Yeah. I think, I think if <sighs> they fought. Me. I think that crushes you, me. I just think... The the level of competition he faces higher, you think so? Yeah, but it's just because GSP was so good, he raised the the bar. He raised like, it to the yeah. level it's at now. You're yes, saying. right. But I think if I, you look at GSP's victories, I mean, he beat some very good guys. But I think the guys Kamaru Usman beat Colby Covington, you know, Jorge Masvidal, Tyron yeah. Woodley. I think they're better. You I think, think Masvidal's GSP level. Yeah. Really? Yeah. I think if Masvidal was around during that time, he would be dangerous for everybody. I think he's on another level, but I think everyone's on another level now. I think like like the Masvidal that knocked out Ben Askren, I mean, that was one of the craftiest fucking moves everyone's ever done. For sure, man. He that ran out. He t- went just, sideways and yeah. then ran straight at him, and yeah. Askren's instincts kicked in, and he kneed him just, into the dark lands. Oh man, just that was one brutal. shot, boom, yeah. into the shadow realm. Yeah. I mean, it's. I Masvidal, just, I mean, he he knocked out Eve Edwards with a fucking head kick back when back in the day. He's a killer, dude. No he's doubt. He's a fucking assassin. He's a killer, dude. No doubt. He's an assassin. He had bare knuckle fights in the Kimbo Slice days. The Kimbo Slice era, yeah. dude. The, the YouTube video area. Masvidal's a gangster. It's, you know, and you know he got he lost to Colby Covington, but I feel like Colby Covington, if it wasn't for Kamaru Usman, would be the welterweight champion of the world. I think Colby's that fucking good. He's like just Usman. Was so uh, up into that Leon Edwards head kick. He, so good, dude. He, it was like, and I and I can agree with you. At watching like, and watching those later, like after, like, so the last fight GSP lost, right? That's Sarah, right? 
So he lost Sarah and then avenges the Sarah. He should have lost to Johnny Hendricks in a lot of people's eyes. When you he, think so? He, yeah, before he retired. A lot of people thought that was not a just decision. I'd have to go back and rewatch re it to see if I agree. But, you know, it was like the amount of fights that he had, the stress bond. Now, don't get me wrong. He's absolutely one of the all-time greats. Yeah. One of the all-time greats. It's not, I'm not looking at it like saying like he wasn't as good as Kamaru Usman. I'm saying what he did was not as impressive as what Usman did. With if the, you look with the at competition. Him, yes. Right. If you look at the fact that, you know, he got armbarred by Matt Hughes when Matt was in his prime. Yep. He got knocked out by Matt Serra. You know, it's, it's, and those are, those are, you know, Matt Sarah was a murderous puncher, and he he took but, that guy for granted. Yeah. And Matt Matt fucking caught him, and Matt could do that to anybody. And then eventually they had a rematch, and he beat Matt up in in front of the fans in Canada, and it was an insane event. Like he's an all time great, and I love him to death. But I feel like if I look at the level of competition he faced and the level of competition Kamaru faced and what Kamaru did to those people, right. you got to understand, Kamaru, when he was coming up, no one would speak his name. He was the boogeyman. Right, because nobody wanted to fight him. Nobody wanted to fight him when he was coming up. Right. Everybody would say, you know, give me this guy, give me that guy. Right, me. and they wouldn't nobody say anything Nobody was saying Kamaru Usman because right. he was smashing people. Right. And he was doing it with destroyed knees yeah that guy's mind is so strong yeah his fucking knees are so bad he goes downstairs backwards yeah let me let me ask you something that is has been intriguing to me and this is a fan who i like i i would say i'm above casual fan but below expert knowledge fan right so i'm not a guy that watches every five pay-per-view i'm a guy that buys every pay-per-view i watch a lot of the you know in between deals because i enjoy it right but i'm not a guy who's like oh dude he's you know the way he got into that darce is like i can do some of that stuff but i'm not expert level so right. and i'm interested to hear your take and this is as a fan who doesn't know these guys at all and has nothing against them but i remember and I think in my mind is undeniably the GOAT. As again, a just above casual fan, John Jones. John Jones is the GOAT. He's the GOAT. Now it's undeniable. It's undeniable. There was he, all this debate until yeah. he submitted Cyril Gaon and became the heavyweight champion. No Dude, one can fuck with that. Smashed him, bro. Smashed and him. Cyril looked kind of unbeatable up until the Francis fight. Well, the Francis fight exposed one aspect of his game sure. that you're never going to beat John in, and that's the wrestling. Yeah. And then everybody said, well, he didn't know that Francis was going to wrestle him. Given. Francis right. is not the caliber wrestler or even in the realm of John, oh, John Jones. Jones no doubt. John Jones has been wrestling since he was 12 years old. He took down Daniel Cormier, who's an Olympic-level yep. wrestler. Yep. There is not a guy in the world that can say that you could start wrestling at 29 years old. I mean, I mean, you'd have to be the freakiest of freak athletes to be able to compete with that guy to start wrestling when Cyril Gaon started wrestling. Right. The, 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 the gap is just too wide to cross. Right. right. So I think what I, what, I, what I was thinking is, and when I bring up John Jones, is I remember the first John Jones fight I watched was when he got uh, DQ'd against Matt Hamill. Okay. From the 12 to 6 elbows. Yeah, yeah. Right? That was my first experience with him. 
The next thing I feel like I remember, and I may have seen some of his fights in between then, but is when he like beat up this guy that was like trying to rob this lady like the night of a fight. That was the day he fought for the title. Right. The day he fought for the title, he chased down a guy who robbed someone and tackled Mm -hmm. him and held Mm -hmm. him until the cops came. Right. And then then went and fought Shogun and became the youngest ever UFC champion. Yep. So here's what I'm getting at. And and this is going to be just kind of – I'm interested in your take on this because I watched it happen with John Jones, and I feel like I watched it happen with Kamaru as well, where it was like John and Kamaru as they came up, right, it's like – John does this thing where he stops this robber and he wins the belt. He beats Shogun, who is this kind of like, you know, him and Leoto were these kind of like unfigureoutable guys at, to me as a fan at that time, right? Like guys like, how do you beat Leoto Machida? You can't figure because you can't even touch the guy, right, at that time. And they were like inherently these like good guys that everybody was rooting for. Mm-hmm. And then both of them became these like, epically long-range champions that then became sort of like villains. Kamara was never a villain. I feel like he is. Really? To me as a fan, again, who doesn't know anything, and maybe it's the, the, it comes back to maybe the celebrity, like, ego thing, like, to the camera as a fan. Again, I've never met the guy. He's probably great. But just as a cash watcher, I went from going, I'm rooting for this guy, to then it be like the way he talks about himself. And I feel like John Jones was the same way to me, is they became this like really like, and then John got in all this kind of like turmoily stuff. Like, Well, I don't think you can compare the two. And here's two reasons why. One, have you ever seen Kamaro talk? Like, you ever seen Kamaro on my podcast? Mm-mm. He's one of the nicest, yeah. most down to earth, sure. friendly, sure. smiley, fun yeah. guys. There's what you're seeing is Kamaru, the, the, the dog. destroyer. The dog. Dude. The dog right. is ready to go 100%. to war. 100%. That's the difference. And, and that's what I was trying to ask. He's like, signaling to sure. all the other people, sure. I'm going to smash you. Right. And that's, that's what he's signaling. Yeah. And that's what I think I was asking is like, is that all just perceived by me? Or is that. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, that's part of the fun of being a fan. Sure. You know, deciding what you like and what you don't like and personalities that you root for and personalities you root against. And sometimes you root against a guy and he wins you over because he's so goddamn good. You're like, I wanted that motherfucker to lose, but he's the fucking greatest. Yeah. John is very different than Kamaro. John is what I would describe is there's human beings that have different temperament and different minds and different mentality and a ruthless competitive drive that's almost terrifying to the the ordinary person. That's John Jones. John Jones is a bad guy who's trying to be a good guy. Right. A, but that, that guy, if we were living a thousand years ago, he would be on a horse with the biggest battle axe waiting in the back, hacking heads off, and everybody right. would be running. And right. those people have always existed. Right. These dominators have always existed. Yeah. But John is like a genuinely sensitive, intelligent guy right. who's trying to do the right thing. Right. But he's a fucking conqueror. Right. He's a fucking conqueror. That's, yeah. that's, that's the thing that's inside of him that leads him to be the goat. And without that, you don't get there. You don't, if you're, you don't get that 
you don't get a Mike Tyson without that. For you sure. don't get a Muhammad Ali without that. You don't right. get a Marvin Hagler without that. Yep. You don't get a you don't get that. That there's a thing inside some people that is a driving force that allows them to overcome the greatest around them. It's a Michael Jordan. It's a hundred percent. There's a there's a thing, man. Tom and, Brady. And those motherfuckers yep. are hated. They're always yep, hated for sure because you have to hate them because right. you can't beat them. It's the two hundred and sixty yeah. inch deer, dude. Yeah, like because my me and my buddies were talking. It's like there's not they're, they they're like man, that's not the deer of a lifetime. That's the deer of ten lifetimes. Yes, most people will never see that. Right, but it's even more than that because you can just accidentally stumble across the deer of a lifetime. Mm -hmm. You can't accidentally beat John Jones. There's a there's a thing about so he's goat over Khabib. He's goat over everybody. Now, Khabib's too. Yeah, Khabib is in the conversation, but Mighty Mouse is in that conversation too. Mighty Mouse, to me, if you want to look at like a technical expression of the greatness of martial arts, he's as good as anybody's ever done it. When when yeah. Mighty Mouse was the flyweight champion, and the only problem is up besides Cejudo and a couple other guys like Benavidez and. He was not dealing with guys that are of the caliber of the guys that John Jones was facing. John Jones was facing Gustafson, yep. Glover Teixeira. He was facing Daniel Cormier. He was facing the elite of the elite, and he never fucking lost, even when he was doing coke and he wasn't even training. Right. That's how goddamn good John Jones is. Right. And when you know when John Jones talks about fights, though, you know when I had him on the podcast, one of the things that he talked about. Some people don't really watch tape or they only watch a little bit. They let mm -hmm. their coaches do the work. John Jones studies everyone. He studies their tendencies. He's get it. He gets in his mind how when you throw that left kick, you, you make this little step with your right foot. You might do this thing when you uh, shoot for a takedown where you keep your leg on, uh, uh, you keep your head on one side every time. You might do this thing where when someone throws a right hand, you always lean to the left. You might do a thing, and John Jones picked up that tendency, and that's how he knocked out Daniel Cormier. He knew Daniel Cormier has a tendency to duck towards his right side because he goes for that single on the left leg, and John caught him with the perfect head kick. But it wasn't by an accident. He fucking, right. he set that up. He set it up just like Leon Edwards set up that head kick on Camaro. There's a there's a beauty to that that's just man in the middle of chaos and anxiety and fear and and the the fucking fog of war you right. figure out a way to connect with this thing that you saw in tape and in training and in preparation right. so it's with John it's not an accident that he's the goat even with his lack of training even with his even with the the it's just like he's so fucking talented that he almost needs another John Jones to make him compete the way he would the way make him train the way a lot of these other guys do like yeah. he's so good he can beat those guys without being challenged by someone like him right because John Jones has never faced a John Jones right true that's what's crazy he's that fucking talented and so you yeah. to be a goat you need all of those things it's like sometimes a, a, a talent is so great that even the fact that they don't work as hard, they're still better than everybody. That's John. That's why John's so good. And he's still, I mean, you saw in his, he's still in his prime. The way, yeah. he, the way he fought three years out and he fights a heavyweight 
who's a 240-pound ripped heavyweight. He's never fought a guy who can move like that and strike like right. that at heavyweight. And he just shut all that shit down. Dude, that video of him training a couple of weeks ago where he throws that his training partner. Yeah, dude, Walt Harris. I was like, oh, Lord. I was like, he is going to demolish this guy, dude. I'm yeah, like, I was up until the day of the fight. I was like, I don't know. I was with uh, Cam Haynes and my buddy Tommy Jr. And we we're, were talking about it. I was like... I don't know, man. I mean, I mean, he had a, a hard time with Dominic Reyes, and Dominic Reyes is like not nearly the striker that Cyril Gaon is. And I was like, I don't. And then the day of the fight, I don't know what it is, man. I'm like, I think John's gonna run right through this dude. I just, I just the day of the fight, I just had this feeling. I just have a feeling that John is just gonna express his greatness tonight. Like all those years out, all the doubts, all the chaos, all yeah. the personal problems and the drugs and the party and the, all the mess. And I think that I think this is gonna bring out the the very best in John. Cause I think guys like him, I think one of the things that was happening with the Dominic Reyes fight and the first Alexander Gustafson fight, uh, I think he was so dominant that he was like playing with his food. I don't. I don't think he right, was like. Right. You know. I yeah. don't think he was like fully engaged in the fear like of facing cat. these men. It's like a cat just yeah. on at the thing. Right. I don't think they presented the challenge that he requires to reach the level that we know he's capable of reaching. But I think Cyril Gunn did provide that challenge. Yeah. And I think he he knew that going up to heavyweight and winning the title and just winning it easily the way he did. All debates are off. You think There's, he goes back down to light and no. tries to win that? No, if he, he, did, he, would, he would win it. Right, he, for he sure. But you know what? Let me tell you something, man. Jamal Hill is no fucking joke. Jamal yeah. Hill, the way he pieced up Glover Teixeira, I was like, oh, my God. The way he grappled with him. Yeah. Like, Jamal Hill might be the fucking man at light heavyweight. And if John went down, that might be a wild-ass fight. That might be a wild fight. But I think John is done with the starving himself and depleting his body right. to make 205. And right. now that he's the heavyweight champion, I think he, he beats all the best heavyweights that are available. And then he goes down in history as number one. Right. And, and good luck catching up. Who's he fight next? Stipe? Stipe. July. You should go. Yeah, I love Stipe too, man. Can you make it? Probably. Yeah, probably July. Where's it at? The, Vegas? That's Vegas. Yeah, Vegas. that's the that's the international fight weekend, and that's the that's the headline fight. That's going to be if, – if as long as someone doesn't get injured, sure, they sure. make the deal. Yeah, T-Mobile Arena. Let's fucking go. July 8th. Now, is this TBD versus TBD like they haven't decided yet? They just haven't announced it yet. There's nothing – But it's has. online, isn't it? I don't – I saw it on a bunch of web – but I just read some, some sketchy websites. Does I would get me all speculative. Yeah, it's all I speculative. would imagine that if I was the UFC, that is the biggest fight you could make. And that there's two, there's two events, there's three events that are like the biggest fights the UFC can make. Madison Square Garden, that's the biggest fight the UFC can make. And then there's International Fight Weekend, those are the biggest fights the UFC can make. And then there's the December one right before New Year's. That's generally the yeah. three biggest cards the UFC can make. Like multiple championship fights. So if, if John and Stipe, I mean, that qualifies as, you know, Stipe, if you look at his record, you look at what he was able to do, he's the most successful heavyweight of all time. He mm -hmm. defended the title more than anybody. He's yeah. the first guy to beat Francis. You know, Stipe, he's the fucking man. And he's a legit, bona fide heavyweight, never been a light heavyweight ever. Yeah. I yep. think Stipe and John is a, an amazing. It's you know Stipe's, it's it's towards the end for Stipe, right. but he's still a great fighter, and he's yep. still and he's also had a lot of time off since the Francis loss, which is great. Mm -hmm. Rest yeah. up, heal up. 
And he put on a lot of weight, too. He put on a lot of mass. He's like 250 now. Really? Yeah, he felt like he was too small for the Ngannou rematch. He's like, he thought he needed cardio because he beat him with cardio in the first fight. You know, he beat him with he beat him with his durability because he got caught with some big shots mm -hmm. and then took him down and then outworked him. Like, Francis went all out to try to knock Stipe out. At the very beginning. And right. when he couldn't, Stipe dominated him. And, and it was one of the best, like, victories of Stipe's illustrious career. But I think that going into the second fight, he had that sort of same approach, but this time he reached a, a patient Francis. This right. time Francis was like just looking to just nuke him. And he wasn't yeah. just running at him, he was using technique, and mm -hmm. he, was, he was just far more evolved as a fighter than he was the first time they fought. And Francis just fucking annihilated him. And you know, but the thing is like, Stipe came into that fight light, and I think he was in like the 230s. If I remember correctly, maybe 240 at the most. And he decided, you know what, I got to bulk up. I got to get bigger. And he got bigger for this uh, John Jones fight. But I think he was he was he was trying to fight anybody. He was trying to fight he was trying to fight Francis again. He was trying to fight Cyril. He'll fight anybody. And right. for whatever reason, they weren't able to make the right fight for Steve Bay. But I think overall, for his own like health and to rebound from that knockout loss, this is good because you don't want a guy getting KO'd in his late 30s and then fighting again three months later. Right. You know, especially right. a heavyweight that got KO'd by Francis in right. a brutal way. Yeah. So I think it's good that he's had this time off, and I'm excited about the fight. He like Chandler McGregor. Ooh, that's chaos. If that <laughs> happens, the thing is, like, Connor hasn't even gotten into the USADA testing pool. Interesting. Yeah, because so, like, Connor broke his leg. Here's what John said a couple of days ago. More than likely felt like that was kind of sprung on me. Need to talk with my team UFC and come up with a plan. Asked about fighting International, international fight, week. fight Week. Yeah, well, that's, listen, this is called negotiation. Yes, that's, that's you know, this <laughs> is what you the, do. Like, maybe I'll fight, maybe I won't. Uh, and people have to like me. Dana also said that he thinks John might retire after that fight. After the Steve Bay fight? Yeah, he may. Seeing on, oh, not there. He may. I lost it. I mean, he's gonna make a fucking boatload of money for well, that fight. Wouldn't be shocked. Wouldn't be shocked. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like Chandler, Chandler uh, McGregor would be electric to see. Oh yeah, for sure. If it happens, I love that. I love that Chandler's just all or nothing, man. I love that about Chandler's him. a fucking animal. Yeah, he's an animal, and I mean, he's he, a very good wrestler. He could fight in a very different way if he chose to. But yeah, I feel he like fights his, for fans. Yeah, like I feel like his last two fights, man. He the problem is the if title you fight, fight in was, that in that style it, though. Man. If you fight in that style against Connor, you're coming straight forward towards Connor. That is Connor's wheelhouse. Right. Connor's one of the greatest counter strikers that's ever fought in the UFC. Right. If you look at his fight with Eddie Alvarez. You look at his knockout victory over Jose Aldo. Mm -hmm. If you come at Connor and you give him a chance to time you, especially in the early rounds, he is fucking lethal. Yeah, he's so good at expo He's so explosive and fast, and you know, I mean, who knows? The thing is, like the USADA testing pool. I don't want to harp on this too much, but this is a giant issue for multiple reasons. Here's one. Let's just speculate. Let's speculate. He got out of the USADA testing pool. This is what I would imagine if I was a, a, a pro athlete at Connor's level and I broke my leg. You need help, okay? You're not just going to heal off that eating mangoes and fucking right. eating clean. Mm. You need some help. You know, right. I would say I would want that person to take something. I don't. I would. You'd have to consult with a, an expert 
sports medicine doctor who would mm-hmm. tell you you want peptides you want growth hormone you want this you want that mm-hmm. you want all these things you can't take when you're in usada you sure. want testosterone you want all these things mm-hmm. and you look at connor after that leg break he got fucking jacked ripped just yeah. gigantic yeah. like 200 plus pounds yeah. it looks like just huge fucking shoulders and like, that's mm-hmm. generally not the result of natural hormones Sure. That's generally the result of exogenous hormone use. Yeah. I don't know if that's true. This is a lot of people are speculating, not just me. And then when you look at the USADA testing pool and the fact that he's not in it, that also comes into So now here's the thing. You're in your 30s, you're 35 or whatever Connor is, 34, and you've disrupted your hormones with exogenous hormones. Now your body has to get back to developing its own hormones. And Mm -hmm. generally speaking, when people take steroids, and I'm not saying you took steroids, but generally speaking, if someone takes steroids, say if you take steroids for six months, you need a year to bounce back to normal hormone levels after Mm -hmm. that. Right. Especially if you're doing it naturally. Sure. Now, there's things you could take like HCG and clomiphene and all these different things that restart your body's production of right. testosterone. But you have to make sure that that's all done before you enter into the UFC, USADA testing pool. Mm-hmm. So then you have to be in the USADA testing pool for six full months before you're allowed to compete. So this is where it stands. So right. until he enters into that, we don't know so when this fight is going to happen from, from now. Right. Right. If he says it now, tonight, I'm going to enter the USADA testing pool. Minimum six months. Yeah. So right. I would imagine, there's no accusations, but if someone was doing something, they would have a team of people that are testing them. And they continue to test them and make sure you're not going to test positive. Because if you test positive in the USADA testing pool, you're out for two fucking years, kid. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's guys who make their UFC debuts and they piss hot and they're gone. They, they get booted out of the UFC Damn. and you're banned for two years and it's, it's terrifying. Yeah, that's crazy. And again, I'm no, no speculation, but this is just being a logical, rational person. Right. That's crazy, man. That's yeah. the stuff that the casual fan just doesn't think about. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, you just, you just want the fight to happen. You know what I mean? Well, like, the fight will be awesome if it happens. Yeah. And when it happens. Um, I, I'm, I'm assuming it's going to happen. But, you know, I'm also hoping that Connor's leg's okay. You know, a leg break of that magnitude, like Chris Weidman, he broke his leg in a similar way, and he just oh, recently man. competed in Polaris, which is a grappling competition, and, you know, he was so emotional after it was over because he's like, this is the hardest two years of my life. So for two years, he's been recovering from this uh, shin break. Oh, that was brutal, man. Oh, it's so God, brutal, man. So brutal. Some guys never bounce back. They're never the same. Anderson was never the same after his leg break. Yep. Tyron Spong was never the same after his leg break. Like those, those kind of leg breaks. They're traumatic, dude. Mm, That's traumatic, scary. Stuff. I've seen three of them in real life. It's mm. fucking rough, man. Oof. Mm. Mm. Stuff gives me the yeah, me the willies, man. It's the well, the worst break. Like an arm break doesn't bother me nearly as much. There's something about that shin break. Mm. And you see that foot dangling and just, just going the wrong way. Yeah, it's yeah, not pretty. Not, not good. Pretty. Yeah. And it's a kind of a career ender for a lot of folks. Yeah. And it doesn't see I mean, we don't know if it's a career ender for Connor, you know? In, hope not. In, in retrospect, I wish he'd never taken that fight with Poirier because it seems like he had a, a hairline fracture already going into that fight. Right. And that's how it broke. It was like he, had, he already had a fucked up leg. Yeah. But he just didn't want to back out of the fight, which he probably should have now. Yeah, that was that was tough to watch. Too, yeah, man. that was real tough to watch. You know, because you don't want it to end that way, either, no. right? Like you no. want it to be, of course. You know, 
I mean, I, and I don't think Poye probably wants it to end that way either, right? I no, mean, he no, wants he it to, to be beat his ass. right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is a, a gigantic fight. Yeah, the rematch. You know, the rubber match between those two—that was a gigantic fight. Yeah, yeah. Connor was wild back in the day, man. That was... he still is. Yeah. I mean, I don't yeah. know. I mean, who knows? I mean, he might come back. He might be the first guy to come back from that leg break and be able to compete at the highest level. He might come back and nuke Chandler and, you know, make it, or Chandler might get him. And, you know, like Chandler's a fucking dog, dude. Yeah. That's a dangerous guy to be locked in there with. For sure. That man. fight with Justin Gaethje, like, Jesus, yeah. Louisus. I mean, those yeah. dudes went at it. Yeah. And he does that with everybody. Mm -hmm. He's just, like, down to go to war. Yeah. He ain't afraid of it. No. He's a fun guy to watch. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of fun guys to, to watch. It's the greatest sport in the world. Yeah. There's nothing like it. So much fun, man. It is really so much fun, dude. Really is. Have you ever done any training yourself? You've done no, anything? Nothing. Do you exercise at all? Look at you. <laughs> no, I've not done any training. Um, depends what you mean by exercise, I guess. Do you, you know? uh, do anything f like for your health, like exercise? For um, your health? I spend a lot of time outside. I mean, you know, I can't say I'm I'm a gym rat, obviously. Um, but it's interesting, man. I've always struggled. Uh, I've I've been this big forever. As weird as that sounds, right? So it's like proportionately to my, you know, until I stopped growing height-wise, mm -hmm. you know, like once I got to where I'm at now, I was kind of like this size. Um, well, I think the real benefits of exercise are not just with the way you look and sure. your body size. I think it's your brain. Sure. I think it's, especially when we're talking about all these issues about the mind and the creative mind playing tricks on you. For me, um, forcing myself to exercise every day is one of the main reasons why I stay sane yeah. through all the chaos that my life goes through. Sure. And I think that's, that's the real benefit that a lot of people do. The, it's almost like the, the benefit that you get physically is um, that's great, but that's almost like a side effect yeah. of the benefit that you get for the mind. For me, yeah. that's how I approach it. Yeah, the crazy thing, <clears throat> thing I think that I struggle with the most – with it is you know it does bother me right like being bigger that bothers me right um the thing that also bothers me about it is like okay for i literally went to the doctor last week right to get the whole bus down like i get physical every year right blood work dude panels counts everything um and it's just all clean dude and that's like it's strange to me, dude, because I feel like I shouldn't be this big, right? And it feels, and that's really upsetting to me. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't eat a tremendous amount of unhealthy food. Like, I'm not stagnant. I mean, I go out and do, I mean, I was doing, you know, hour 45, two hour sets, three, sometimes four nights a week for years at, at this size. And it's never bothered me. But it bothers me, right? It does, though. It bothers me in the sense of like because I don't, I don't feel like I should be the size that I am, right? And I'm sure everyone's gonna jump on me when they watch this and be like, "Whoa, you need to do this. You need to do that," right? Mm -hmm. And I've just—it's a code that I've never been able to crack, right? With diet, with exercise, we've—I've had a trainer out on tour, and it's like I can lose. 10 15 20 pounds and then it just it stops right and maybe mm -hmm. that's me dude right because ultimately i think the thing that's so frustrating to me is like is it ultimately it is me right 
there is nobody else to blame, right? Like there's not, I know whatever I'm doing at that time is not enough. Well, you have to look at it like this. It's a process and you have to look at where you are in that process. Now you can be someone like Jamie who's thin and healthy and fit and his process that he decides he wants to improve his fitness is a different process than yours. Mm -hmm. And this process is scientific you can look at it in terms of calories in, calories out, mm -hmm. expenditure, diet, and mitigation things, and all the, all the different things you could do for recovery, like sauna and ice bath and all those different things. All those factors play a part in this process, and this process is long. Mm -hmm. You have to realize that you've been in the process of becoming who you are now your whole for life. For 33 years, right. no doubt. So the yeah. process of Getting going— out of it is it's right. but it, you have to be it's a path it's a long grind yep. it's not like i take someone on tour and i lose 20 pounds and then it stops 100%. it's like no 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 no, no. you, you you you've just day. you just started right. your first steps you're not climbing up mount kilimanjaro yet yep. there's a, a long process yep. and people get very discouraged in the fact that they don't see tangible obvious physical results For sure. they would like to work out a few times really hard and then to have a six pack and look great no doubt. That's what everybody wants. No doubt. But the, the thing is a process. But it's just like your music. It's just like anything else. The more time you put into it, the more effort you put into it, the better the results are. And you can get people that are like my friend Ethan Suplee, who is like fucking enormous at one time. Oh, remember the Titans? Dude. Yeah. He was like massive. He was so dude. big. And now yeah. that dude is fucking uber healthy. Yep. Works out every day. He's yep. super happy and fit. And and he went through multiple times where he gained the weight back and blew out his stitches from having his fucking skin removed. He right. fucked himself up and had to get yep. it done again. And and he still kept going. He got right. back on the horse and he kept going. It, but it's not a thing that happens quick. It's not yep. a thing that happens easy. Yeah. And you you have to be like it's not a thing that's just going to happen on its own. Like mm -hmm. this, it's like uh, oh, how'd you build that house? Oh, I just fucking it just did it on its own. No, it's right. like every fucking nail has to be hammered in. Every yep. every piece of floorboard has to be cut perfectly. Every two by four has to be. You just it all has to be done. Yeah. And it's a long process. Yeah, it's tough. And I'm I would say, you know, now I'm in the middle of that, right? Like I'm in the middle of that process of like I have wrestled with it for a long time, right? And I'm ready to like move on with like the next part of my Beautiful. life. Beautiful. Which is like then just commit to it. And the fact yeah. that you're committing to it right now yeah. on the air is great. Yeah. And then also just start writing shit down. Yeah. I'm writing like, down what you're supposed to do. Yeah, I need, that's the thing I need is like, you know, having, you know, having, you know, our son and, and everything I think is huge. You know, um, it's given me such a perspective shift. Um, and I'm just, I'm slowly but surely, you know, it's every day. It really is like it's making this choice instead of that choice right yeah. and it's like that's so hard right it, and it is and and not and that's not an excuse at all you know because i will get there I, i'm a firm believer in that you know um if it Listen, takes man, i can find somebody to help you that'd be i would love that yeah i could find you really? a rock solid trainer that's yeah. in nashville i have a great train that's the thing i have a great trainer and i feel like yeah, I, I just got to commit to it, man. Like, and, and it's like I have a guy that's great, and our schedules. Like, he's, you know, he's got a son that he was the guy that come out with us, um, 
and I love him, dude. And that was the most progress I ever made. And he, me, and him get along so well. Get we back know each on other the horse, so well. Luke. Let's go. No, I want to, man. Let's fucking go. I want to so so bad. then, just do it. Yeah. All right. It's yeah. done. 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 I'm in. Good. I'm beautiful. In. I'll commit to it. That'll help the mind, man. That's yeah. the, the thing that helps my mind more than anything. And I think it's like, it's funny. I was talking to my business manager, who's a, a dear, a dear friend of mine now, you know, and, um, him and m myself and my manager are, are all really, really tied. It's kind of an abnormal relationship in the sense of like, he's not just my business manager, right? Like he's become, he's friends with my parents. Like he's a part of like our lives now. Right. And so we talk about these things and I remember telling him sitting out one night having, having a whiskey. And I was like, I was like, Chris, man, look like, I was like, I know I've accomplished so much, like doing music and, and like I've, you know, we're about to go on the stadium tour. This was just a, a few months ago, I think maybe December or January. And I was like, listen, man, like I've accomplished all these things. And like, I've won entertainer of the year twice now. And, and I've got, you know, 15 number one songs and all these insane accolades that I could have never imagined. And like, in some ways, like, because I love music and because I feel like I've been uh, like blessed with like the voice I have and the talent I have, like the, the voice and the talent I have to me doesn't feel earned. Right. Does that make sense to mm -hmm. you? Like there is a lot of work to hone the craft, but like nobody that's tall is like inherently talented for being tall. Right. And just cause you're tall you doesn't earn it. Right. Like right. you don't feel like you're, you're not a great basketball player because right. you're tall. You earn that. But right. sometimes the precursor to being great at basketball is being tall. So you do have to, not always, but for the most part, right. statistically speaking, that's a precursor of being great at basketball. Having a great voice statistically is a precursor for being a great musician. Mm -hmm. Not always, but for the most part, statistically speaking. And so- I, I don't want to come across as contrite or anything when I say this, but like, I feel like sometimes that I haven't done anything that's like hard to but do. That's also a part of your humility. That's part of what keeps you focused on your task. Yeah, it's like that you're not, you know, you're not, you're not like congratulating yourself. But like my, but like I think. My physical fitness and my appearance and my size has always been something that I've struggled with from the time I was a child. And, like, it's this mountain that I've always been standing at the bottom of, trying to run up and inherently slipping down every time, right? And it's this thing that, like, I feel like if I don't overcome it in my lifetime, it will be my biggest regret. mm Without a doubt. Like, it is a burden that weighs so heavily on me. And many because, guys. And, and silently. And, and many women silently. And not and not because I care of what other people think about me, about the way I look, about the my size, or any of that. It's because what it... I, I feel like it means about me as a man. Because there's this thing that I want to accomplish that is solely up to me. Nobody else can do it for me. Nobody did this to me but me. I want so badly to conquer that, and I will. And I'm, I'm excited for that day to come because I know 
that will mean so much to me. I want it to mean something to my children. I want to be running around the yard with my children. I want to take my son on an elk hunt when he's 16 years old and hike up a mountain when I'm in my late 40s. I want to do that with him. And I know right now I can't do that with him. And that bugs the shit out of me. This is all doable, Luke. It's all doable. No it's, doubt. This is not no like trying to get tall. No doubt. This no is, doubt. This it's is all something doable. that all you have to do is just stay on the path. And I think there is beauty in that, that it is something that can be accomplished. Yes. And that's why it's so exciting when people do it. When yeah. someone like Ethan pulls it off, it's like a, it's a fucking, a beautiful gift to everybody else. Like this is a, this is surmountable obstacle. This is something yeah. that can be accomplished. Yeah. It's not easy, no. but it can be done. It can be done, for sure. Not impossible. All right. We ended it with Sick. this. Luke, you're a bad motherfucker. Likewise, Appreciate you bro. very much. Appreciate you having Thanks me. Thanks for doing this. Let's do it again. Absolutely. I'm in. Fuck yeah. Yeah. All right. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Bye, everybody. <laughs>